בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, good to be back here in Aventura, ברוך השם. We have another show, we are on the Musar Pekeh Avot, number 132. You guys can sit down at the same price. I don't charge for the seats. Baruch Hashem, we have a uh, nice following of the series. Lots of people uh, have been following it. Anyone that's followed it since the beginning, uh, of course, has, uh, has had some major dra- you know, changes in their life. Uh, I've seen some people go through an entire conversion, entire tshuva, marriage, kids. Baruch Hashem, a lot of good things. Bezot Hashem, the Irgun Bezot Hashem organization, uh, anyone that always wants to see any updates and things like that, always check out the websites. There's constant updates. Uh, today we posted some uh, more pictures of the uh, recent New York trip uh, that we had. We're actually going back to New York in a few days. Uh, for a couple of days, we have a, uh, a shiur there on Monday at Old Torah. Uh, and then uh, a uh, big event on Siyum uh, Shas. In, uh, in, uh, on Tuesday uh, that uh, I was invited to uh, speak for a couple of minutes uh, there as well. Uh, I'm hoping maybe we'll be able to record that too. Uh, but um, the uh, shiur today is continuing our Mishnah. It's a uh, Mishnah 525. And just off the top of my head, it's I just called it the life of a uh, of a Jew, the journey of a Jew, a Jewish life, uh, life journey of a Jew. But uh, we'll see where Hashem takes us, because this is a topic that you can talk about and write about endlessly. It all depends on what your perspective is. As I mentioned on Sunday in the Shiur in Hollywood. People ask all the time, why is it that uh, people that die and come back from death, you know, near-death experiences, they call it in the medical world, um, why is it that some of times they have different stories? You know, they, many of them talk about a tunnel, they see a light, they see darkness, they see Gehenom, they see angels, they see uh, judges and so on, but, you know, in general, it's the overall story for the majority of them, which has been already over 30 million documented stories. Uh, majority of them are the same, but there's still there's uh, some wide variance between them. And as we explained briefly, is that uh, a person only needs to understand the human mind in order to understand the answer. You don't need to understand the meaning of the dreams, the meaning of the near-death experience, the meaning of the Torah, or the meaning of life. You don't need to understand anything. All you need to understand is, the, is just simply how a, usually how a person thinks, psychology of a person, and just know a little bit of math. So if you give one picture to ten different people of whatever you want, it could be a tree, it could be a house, it could be a field, it could be a desert, it could be just a, some uh, one of those uh, strange black uh, batches of ink that they, the psychiatrists like to use to see what you define it as. One guy says it's a horse, the other guy says it's a tree, the other one says it's his wife, the other one says it's a son, the other one says it's a pig. Meaning that even though 10 people or 100 people or an infinite amount of people can look at the same exact picture, they all have their own perception. So that already explains 10 different sides to the story. Even though all 
people that have near-death experience, or any experience for that matter, even going to the shul, or getting married, or, or meeting somebody, or going to a lecture, all of you will have a different experience at the end of the night. Even though you all heard the same words. Assuming that you didn't play with your phone the whole time. Assuming that you did not read another book if you're here. Assuming you actually paid attention to the words that are coming out of my mouth, you all heard the same thing. Now, if you come here to play with your phone, it's better that you do it somewhere else. Number one, it's very annoying to me because you're disrespecting the Torah. Now, you disrespect your Torah in your own house, and that's your problem. Disrespect it in front of me, it's very, very annoying to me. Why? Because I have to stop and think and evaluate. Do I have to actually embarrass you in public at this point? Or do I just let it go and embarrass you later? When do I rebuke you? And I have to go over this the whole time while I'm trying to think of what I'm supposed to say about the shoe itself. Why? Because I have an obligation to rebuke you. Especially if I see you and I'm the one that has the knowledge. Hashem gave me the knowledge. I have to use it. I can't just sit here like a pegel, some donkey over here and act like nothing happened. So if you're going to not pay attention... Because you just don't have any attention, it's one problem. If you're doing something on a regular basis, like reading a book or playing with your phone and things of that nature, please don't do it because you're putting me in a very, very difficult circumstance. The second reason is because why would you come to a lecture and pay attention to something else? Don't you have something better to do? So these are just a couple of thoughts to start off today. Now... This is the same goes for the people that are watching online. It's very important that if you're going to watch online, to watch and listen to the words that I'm saying and not to the comments that the Christian missionaries come and say every week or the atheist or the anti-Jew or the anti-life or the anti-something else, all the people that hate me, all the people that hate themselves. All of you, every week we have some terrorist, some spiritual terrorist arrive on the message boards and talk about me. Sometimes they're a rabbi, sometimes they're a missionary, sometimes they're whatever they are, a, a gargamel or something. Whatever they are, but every week we have at least one or two of them. If you're watching online, please look at me. Don't make any comments. Just ignore them. Just ignore them. Just ignore them. If you can, you could uh, file a complaint to Facebook and uh, mark them as spam if you want. But that's it. Don't go back and forth. You're wasting your time. And the reality is they're going to come to you in Shemaim on Rosh Hashanah and say, what did you study this year? And you go, oh no, every Tuesday night I watch Yaron Uven, Shil Torah, three hours. He says, three hours in our line. What three hours? What, what, what are you talking about? Wait, what three hours? Three hours this year? Yeah, this year was three hours. You made me pay attention for three minutes. Why? Because you were busy typing, you're busy fighting, you're busy uh, eating popcorn, you're busy everything else. If you're already going to watch, be mad. The whole point is, is to watch. Because you're already going to spend the three hours. Not like, what, everybody has three hours in their life. You're already going to spend the three hours. Use it effectively because that's the only way it's going to change your life. I'm telling you this from the bottom of my heart because I really, really want you guys to improve and to continue doing tshuva because it's the only way that we can get the Gan Eden. It's the only way that we can live a Gan Eden in this world, not just the next world. So the journey of a Jew is difficult to explain why because there's different perspective one guy that died and came back has one perception another guy another woman she has a different perception but then also they have 10 different ways of communicating it 
you know, people have the, the power of speech. One person speaks in a monotone type of uh, speech, similar to Rabbi Zemir Cohen. God bless him, big, ta- big tzaddik, big talmid chacham, the uh, founder of uh, one of the, if not the biggest, um organization in the world, and Hidabrut. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing is, is that uh, I heard a story actually today, that uh, years ago, he came to Achim. Achim used to be the biggest Kiruv organization in the world. Uh, some of the uh, greatest rabbis in the world, Kiruv rabbis in the world, went under their belt, started over there, or continued there, and did lectures with them, and still to this day, in the U.S. and uh, Israel and around the world. They specialized, in the old days at least, they specialized in seminars, weekend seminars. And they have a program to train speakers. Anyone that knows a little bit of Torah, wants to become a professional speaker, goes over there, it's a couple of thousand shekels, they train them. They say, do this, do that, say this, say that. Speak high here, speak low here. Bang on the table. All types of interesting things. You know, the power of speech, teaching you how to become a speaker. And someone came to them, one of the Avrechim from Ephraim's Kolel, that went to this uh, program once. He said, listen, uh, all everything that you said is fine. The problem is that you said that you have to raise your voice and lower your voice, and that's what you need to do in order to succeed. Because a, a good speaker needs to raise their voice and lower their voice in order to capture your attention. So, for example, when I speak like this, you have a certain level of attention. But if I start whispering, then all of you are going to pay attention a little more. Why? Why is he whispering? So I have to listen and understand even more carefully. I'm definitely not going to play with my phone if he's whispering, because it must be a big secret. Big. And if he uses his hands, it must be even bigger. But if he raises his hands and he says this, he's like, whoa, why is he screaming? All right, even more attention. I need to keep going. I train people to do this for many, many years, 20 years. I don't really use it myself very much because I really want you to listen to lie and not be entertained with my speech. But the point, Rabotai, is that this is the power of speech. I could entertain you or I could teach you. Doing both is a little difficult. The reason why is because a really, really good speaker that works on his speech forgets about what he says. He just cares about how he says it. So anyway, the, uh, the guy that uh, came to this uh, seminar of learning how to speak said, you said you have to raise your voice, lower your voice. That's all nice, but uh, everybody knows Rabbi Zemir Cohen is monotone the whole time. Same thing, never raises, never lowers. But Baruch Hashem, the success that he has, the shepherd that he got, Baruch Hashem, may he continue growing and his yagun continue growing. How, how could it be? He says, you're right. And actually, Rabbi Zemir Cohen came here. He came to the program and we rejected him. And thank God we did. Thank God we rejected him. So then he said, yeah, but also you said that uh, you're not supposed to be too joking, too much jokes. And everybody knows is Rabbi Fenger, also in Idabut, also his big success. He goes, let me tell you another secret. Rabbi Fenger also came here. He says to him, he says to him, in front of people, he tells a story. He says, he also came here, and we rejected him too. And thank God we rejected him. So now the people are asking, what do you mean, thank God, thank God? Look at the empire they built. He goes, Exactly. Exactly, they built an empire on their own, their own way. 
Why? Why were they able to, to build an empire on their own? Why did we need, did Hashem make us reject them? Because they got into it for the right reason. They got into it because they wanted to help people do tshuva. They got into it because they wanted to help people, period. And if you want to help people, if you want to do the will of Hashem, you don't need to train how to speak. You don't need to know how to speak. You don't even need to know how, what to say. Why? Because a bali someone that comes to become pure, to purify, they give him a hand. They give him a hand from Shemaim. So even though the traditional person needs to know how to raise their voice, lower their voice, not say too many jokes, say too many jokes, he needs to know what he's going to say before he says it, that's because the average person is doing it for a different reason. Maybe a little bit of money, maybe a little bit of kavod, maybe a little bit of both. But if you're going to do it for the right reason, you don't need any training. Hashem will do, will do everything that's possible. So it's very interesting that how the Torah works. Because I remember in the business world, I trained over 130 people to learn how to speak. And certain people had the gift of gab. You just had to tweak a few things and teach them what to say and how to say it. Other people, you had to teach them how to talk also, how to spell, how to write, how to read, how to everything. Even though there were 30, 40, 50, in one case almost 60, they teach them everything. But at the end of the day, who was the best guy? You have one guy that came in, he knows nothing. You have to teach him everything. You teach him how to, honestly, I had a couple of kids, two young kids came to me. I teach them how to write. Two young boys, Jewish kids. They didn't know how to write. Now, they, they spoke. They're not like uh, you know, animals. They spoke. They knew how to spell, uh, you know, if you spell check. They, they, they knew the shape of the letters, but they didn't know how to actually write. Or the shape of, you know, they didn't know how to write really well. They didn't really know how to speak so well. They were very young, very much, like uh, right off the tree. A little apple still, still, still hasn't uh, grown three years. Nothing. Little baby. Went to high school, but apparently the high school forgot to educate them. I don't know. And then I have some people that are in the middle, 30, 40 years old, think they're hot shots. And then I have the oldest, oldest employee I think I had was almost maybe like 60, 57, 58. It's kind of strange being 25, your employee's almost double, you know, old enough to be your grandfather. Who was the best guy? You have one guy, it's almost 60, he's got a lot of experience. Doesn't know how to speak too well, but you got a lot of experience. You got the 30-year-old, he's, you know, middle. He's got some power, he's got some energy, he's got some, some experience. And you got the 18-year-old, barely knows how to scratch his head. Which one's the best one about that? Who are you going to get? Experience. 18-year-old. The one? They're all starting from the bottom. The one that was afraid of me. Huh? Ones that listen the most. Ones who left. No one trades stocks. You don't come to 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 a broker firm to trade stocks. You come to sell. Trading stocks is for people that are experienced, that are already in the business for many many years. That's the illusion that people think. You go into work for Goldman Sachs, they actually give you money to trade. They give you coffee to go make them. That's what you do for the first three to five years. You don't trade anything. 
trade yourself on the internet with your zero dollars. You don't trade anybody else's money in the beginning. No one's no one's crazy enough to give an 18 or 20 year old or any beginner any money to trade. So the answer to save the time, Abutai, it's had nothing to do with the age. The 18, the 30, and the 60, it's irrelevant how old they were. The one that succeeded was the hardest worker. That's it. Who was hungrier? Who wanted it the most? Who was willing, not just hungry and expect, I want millions. No, a lot of people, everybody says I want millions. Everybody says I want millions. I'm not talking about that. That's just somebody, that's just a wish list. Everybody has a wish list. I'm talking about hungry by what am I doing to get the million? What am I doing to be successful? That's what, that's what hungry means in the world. When you go into the business world or into any world and you say, who's hungry? They're not talking about who wants to eat. No one is asking you if you want to eat. Because if, if they ask you if you wanted to eat, they just give you food. They don't need to ask you because of course you want to eat. You're an animal that eats. When they ask you who's hungry, see who's willing to do what it takes to get things done. So the one that was willing to do what it takes to get things done was the one that won. Time and time again. Unfortunately, out of 135 people, the vast majority of people... They all got the training, they all got the efforts on our end, but unfortunately most of them failed. And the reason why is because they all wanted to eat, but they weren't hungry. Everybody wanted the millions, everybody wanted to be the boss. Nobody wanted the bills though. Nobody wanted to come and wake up at 6 or 5.30 in the morning to get to work at 7, to be ready at 8 on the phone, and make sales until 8 o'clock at night for 12 hours straight, maybe with a half hour break in between. Nobody wanted to do that. Everybody wants the easy money. They want the million dollars already. Can you just write me the check in advance? I had one guy, first day on a job. Can you write me in advance? First day on a job. He's in, the, in my office for three hours. Can you write me in advance for, you know, for an advance for this two weeks? Can you pay me in advance? So, a lot of people want the prize, but very few went, want the actual, to do what's necessary. This is not a new creation. This, Unfortunately, it's more prevalent today. It's more common today than in the old days. In the old days, they wouldn't even entertain somebody that's lazy. But today, there's a, you know, we, have, we have a very lazy generation. People want the prize without even competing. And unfortunately, there are many people that enable them by giving a participation award and giving them nice complimentary words for no reason whatsoever, just because they're afraid to hurt them. In reality, we're creating a generation of losers and lazy people. Now, just like Hashem runs the world as a business, as Rabbi Akiva taught us in Mishnah Pirkei Avot, we have to look at things the same way in the religious world. If we're lazy to chase the number one desire in the world today, where it's money, then most likely we're going to be lazy in every other aspect of our life, including spirituality. So when a person wants to succeed in the life of a, of, of a Jew, he has to realize that it's going to require mesirut nefesh. It's going to require self-sacrifice. It's going to require a lot of hard work. If you're looking for the easy mitzvah, you're looking at the wrong address, wrong religion, wrong life, wrong gilgul. Maybe if they gave you another gilgul as a rock, you'll have an easier time because you won't have to do much other than suffer inside the rock. But if you want a life of a Jew, then you have to work. You have to pray in the morning on time. You have to pray in the afternoon on time. 
You have to pray before you eat. You have to pray after you eat. You have to learn Torah every single day without an exception, including Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. You have to develop your manners to make sure that you are a good representation of Am Yisrael and Hashem Barach. Meaning, you have to be really, really busy at all times. There's no coasting the life of a Jew. If you're coasting, that means you're not a Jew. You're something else. You're like a half a Jew. You're like a half a Jew, a mini Jew, a minor Jew, a wannabe Jew, some other thing. You're just not a full Jew. Why? Because in order to be a Jew requires a lot of work. Hashem gave us 613 mitzvot, and the rabbis were empowered to give another seven. That means there's 620 total mitzvot that are available to all of us, even though many of them, almost half of them, are not relevant today because we don't have the Bet HaMikdash, so we can't do Korbanot. But as soon as the Mashiach comes, all of them become relevant. You need to know them. You need to know that if a person accidentally violates Shabbat, he has to bring a Korban. He has to bring a big bull or a cow to the Bet HaMikdash and then do tshuva, announce out loud that he sinned by accident. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rabotai. Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry. Accidentally, I didn't realize it was 5 o'clock in the morning. I got up to go to the bathroom and by reflex I turned on the light. I'm sorry. Guys, I'm, I'm really sorry. You have to announce it. I'm sorry. It's part of your tshuva. Why? Because the shame that you get by announcing it the shame is part of the tshuva. Today, somebody says, by the way, I drove on Shabbat on purpose. There's no shame. We have no shame. Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer, Allah Shalom, says we have no shame. That's the problem. We have no shame. In the old days, you turn on a light by accident. You fire by accident. You uh, take, uh, you do borer. Separate the good from the bad by accident because you forgot it's Shabbat. You forgot it's not allowed. Something you forgot. You have to bring a korban. And Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer, Allah Shalom, says in all Israel, and he says, look at the difference in the generations. And he's talking already 150 years ago. He says, look at the difference in generations. In the old days, first of all, you were embarrassed of your accidental sin. He says, who's embarrassed of a purpose sin now? Accidental sin? Who's, who's embarrassed of an accidental sin? People are not embarrassed of a purposeful sin. Mezid, they're not embarrassed. How are they going to be embarrassed of an accidental sin? So part of the tshuva in the old generations of Abutai is that we were actually embarrassed of the sins. Second thing he says, you have to announce it, go through the embarrassment, but then you also have to spend money. Spend a lot of money to bring one of these giant cows, $10,000, to bring a cow to the Bet, to, to the bet Mikdash, and then you have to see them slaughter it. You have to see with your eyes something that's very gruesome. Personally, I saw one time, I saw a slaughter. I remember it for the rest of my life. My father, God bless him, took us to, took me and my brother Gabi to see a uh, slaughter right before Pesach in Eretz Yisrael when we were little kids. I saw them slaughter the, uh, the sheep. To this day, I feel bad for the sheep. I still eat them, but I feel bad for him. Just pretend like it's not a sheep. I still eat them though. So bad from a distance. Back then. But the point is, Abotai is uh, it's awful. Thank God I don't see it. Somebody tell me, she's cut a sheep. She have somebody else do it. Have somebody else do it. I'd like to eat it. Why? It's, it's, it's a gruesome thing. Taking a life of something, it's a big thing. 
I remember, I remember I told you guys I had this uh, tikkun of these frogs that came into my house. That was the most difficult thing. Why? You can't kill these things. It's not bugs. It's like little animals. It's like little, little mini dinosaurs are in your house. You can't just step on them. It's actually like living. They have blood and stuff. It's disgusting. You can do it. It's gruesome. It, you have to have no soul or something to kill these things. Very difficult. So anyway, Rabotai, a person brings this korban to the Bet HaMikdash and he sees them slaughter this cow, this bull, huge beast. If you ever see one of these things online, how they slaughter them, Shem Yachem. Imagine coming back as a, as a Gilgul, as one of these cows. You have to be slaughtered to fix yourself. Shem Yachem. So now, a person has to look at this. He can't just like send it away. He has to look at it. Why? Because he has to think, look, technically, why is Hashem, is Hashem eating this cow? Hashem really needs this cow. What's happening? 10,000 cows every hour. Well, Hashem eats all these cows. What, do we, what does Hashem need all these cows for? The reality is Hashem is trying to remind us that in reality, that even for an accidental sin, for an accidental sin, it was supposed to be us being slaughtered. For an accident. Accidentally, you turn on the light on Shabbat. Accidentally, you separate the good from the bad on Shabbat. Accidentally, you forgot it Shabbat. Just forgot. Happened to forget. Accidentally, you did. You lit the candles. You lit the candles for Shabbat. Mitzvah, Right? But accidentally, you looked at last week's clock and not this week. So last week, it was 7.52. This week, it's 7.51. So you lit at the last minute. Problem is, now it's Shabbat. You lit fire on Shabbat. So instead of it being a mitzvah, you just lit fire on Shabbat. Hashem Yerachem. Hashem Yerachem. You just lit fire on Shabbat. Accident. So accidentally, you violated Shabbat. So the cow that's being slaughtered with the blood gushing everywhere, it's supposed to be us. Rabbi Yitzchak Blazer, Allah Shalom says, if that's the punishment that we're supposed to get for an accident, what are we going to get for on purpose if we don't do tshuva? These are the things that a Jew is supposed to think about. If you don't think about them, you're MIA Jew. You're a Jew that's missing in action. You're not doing such a good job at being a Jew. Before Rosh Hashanah, we're supposed to have all of these reminders. Not because Rosh Hashanah is the only time to do tshuva, but because Rosh Hashanah is the last opportunity to do tshuva before the next judgment comes up. We're technically supposed to do tshuva every day. So Rabotai Karim. All of these things are the scary reality that we call our life. But the good news is, if we do all of these things, Hashem promises us wonderful blessings. In this week's parasha, parashat Kititze, it says, Kititze la You will go out to war against your enemy. And the Ba'alea Musa explained, who is your enemy? Your enemy is the Yitzhara. The Yitzhara. Yitzhara is the biggest enemy that you could possibly have. Not only because 
The Yetzirah is one that is constantly putting you in a risk to lose Olam Abba by trying to convince you to violate Shabbat, by trying to convince you to wear a tight dress or a tight shirt as a woman or even as a man, by trying to convince you to be promiscuous, by trying to convince you to eat things that are not kosher. He's constantly trying to convince you to do things. Not by giving, putting the argument in your head and starting to say, do it, do it, do it, but just simply putting you, putting the Kit Kat with no kosher stamp on it. Putting the mayonnaise that has no kosher on it. Like, yeah, but it's just mayonnaise. It's eggs. It's nothing. It's mayo. Like, what could possibly be wrong with mayo? Like, why can't I just eat mayo without a kosher stamp on it? What is it? Rabbis didn't get paid, so that's why I have to suffer? I already bought the thing. I already spent seven bucks on it. I already spent seven dollars on the mayonnaise. Why can't I eat it? I really want the mayo. Now, I can't eat the sandwich with the naknik, with the little cutlets on it, because I like it with mayo. But the mayo that I bought from Publix by accident didn't have a kosher stamp on it. So why, I'm not going to have a sandwich? Of course, I have to. If I'm going to have a sandwich, I have to have mayo. But I only have this mayo, and it's 12 o'clock at night. I can't have a different mayo. So what am I going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to eat the mayo? If you eat the mayo, have you no yirat shamayim whatsoever? You believe that you're God if you eat the mayo. Because God said you're not allowed to eat the mayo if it doesn't have a kosher stamp. To take a risk on something that seems small is a big deal. Why? Because if you're willing to take such a simple, such a risk that you're going to eat this mayo without knowing what's in it, that means you care less about the sins that are accidental to such an extent that you also care less about sins that are on purpose either. We're so far away from the truth in that scenario that if you're asking whether you should eat something or don't eat something that doesn't have a kosher stamp on it, that means there's a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. There are certain things, there are certain foods that do not need a kosher stamp. If you want to know which ones they are specifically, you go to the kosher websites. They'll tell you exactly which ones they are because there are certain foods that simply do not use anything. Generally, I don't recommend even eating those simply because things change and they're not obligated to report anything to the kosher institutions since they're not signed up with them anyway. Like, for example, there was one, uh, one guy that used to work for me, a religious guy. He used to drink Red Bull all the time. And uh, one time somebody asked him, and I just overheard the conversation, and said, wait, now, how do you drink Red Bull? It doesn't have a kosher stamp on it. He goes, no, no, it's allowed, it's allowed. He goes, how is it allowed? He goes, no, it's allowed somewhere, it's allowed on the website. They said that Red Bull is allowed, and I believe it was posted on some website at the time, that it's allowed to drink Red Bull even though it doesn't have a kosher stamp on it. The problem with that mentality, though, is that you're going to continue drinking Red Bull or other drinks or other candies or other whatever, assuming that they don't need to have the kosher stamp on it. But what you don't know is that companies change. They change ingredients. They change uh, employees. They change processes. They change everything. And if they're not signed up with the kosher institutions, they don't have to report anything. So what used to be okay may not be okay anymore. That's why I generally do not recommend eating or drinking anything that does not have a kosher stamp on it, unless that's the way you eat it, meaning it's like a, a vegetable. It's a, it doesn't have, there's no kosher stamp 
for a tomato that hasn't been cut. There's no kosher stamp for lettuce that hasn't been cut. If that's how it is, how it grows naturally, you don't need a kosher stamp. But if a uh, if you, if obviously there's human hands in, involved here, then you have to have a kosher stamp. But the point is, Rabotai, is that these little things are the constant test of the Yitzhah that is going to try to convince you every day to go against Hashem. Every day. That is the enemy. meaning your enemy, that's the Yitzhah. The other part of the Yitzhah is that he convinces you that it's okay which makes it very, very difficult to do tshuva. Many people that have a difficult time doing tshuva, it's not because they don't believe that God is real. It's not that they don't believe that there's reward and punishment. The problem is that they don't believe that there's anything wrong with what they're doing. A person can look in the mirror and see nothing wrong, even though he has a horn coming out of his forehead. He doesn't realize there's something wrong with that. He thinks, no, it's just today. It's just a bad hair day. Like he just won't realize there's anything wrong in himself. There's a lot of people like that that they don't like to get rebuke. And Shlomo Amelech explains that a person that doesn't like rebuke is dead. It's considered dead. Why? Because if he doesn't like rebuke, there's no way that he could actually do tshuva. If there's no way that he could do tshuva, he's considered a rasha. And a rasha is considered dead during his life. Now this is simply in regards to the Yetzirah trying to get us to lose Olam Abba. Most people don't really care about Olam Abba, let's be frank. Why? It's far away. Who do you know that came back from there? All types of nonsense talk like that. What most people don't realize is that the Yetzirah is also trying to make sure that you lose this world too. And that's the part that a secular person or a half-religious person or a person that's simply not glued to Hashem, is just not going to see, realize, or even think about. The average person does not realize the magnitude of the influence that the Torah will have on their life here. They think, and I remember my own mindset, that life without Torah is more, is more fun, more free, enjoyable, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to care about anything. Free thinking, free spirit, free, 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 free. The average person thinks that their life is drastically better with less mitzvot. They even make some people even go to the level of making videos about it. Of celebrating how they relieve themselves of the mitzvot or they don't want to keep mitzvot. They never kept mitzvot. Anyone that celebrates leaving was never actually there to begin with. They just wore a custom and pretended to be. Because anyone that actually lives a life of Torah, real life of Torah, by definition, would have to be one of the happiest people that you know. Because the Torah is what provides happiness. It's the only thing that can provide happiness in this world. Nothing else can provide you happiness. Everything else can provide you like happiness. You can be excited like an adrenaline rush by getting a new car, a new house, a new wife, a new husband, a new kid more money, or even taking a pill. All of that will give you things that look like and portray happiness, but it's not happiness. 
Happiness is something that you simply are. It's a, it's a certain state of mind that's always there, regardless of whether you're asleep or awake, regardless of whether you're walking or running or sitting, working or simply sitting down doing nothing. Happiness is a state of mind. It's a permanent state of mind. Anything that you think it is, that's not what I just described, it simply resembles it, resembles happiness. And what's the difference? The difference is that everything else requires some type of stimuli, requires something to make it happen. So if you want to be aroused, you need to have a wife or a husband. If you want to uh, be uh, you know, uh, elevated uh, mentally, you need to take some type of drug. Legal, illegal, irrelevant. If uh, you want to laugh, somebody needs to say something in order to make you laugh. If you uh, need to feel powerful, somebody needs to give you something. Or you need to take a hold of something. Meaning, you have to be stimulated by something. That's what we call like happiness. It's like it. It resembles it. But it's not sustainable. Why? Because even if you go to the best comedian in the history of mankind, eventually the show ends. He has to go home. He has kids and a wife. He has to go somewhere. He's not going to sit there and entertain you all day and all night. And by the way, even if he does, eventually it's not funny anymore. Eventually it's like, all right, yeah, yeah, I laughed already. I'm, I'm, I'm laughed out. It's enough. I'm laughed out. It's enough. It's enough. Eventually the food, you don't want to eat anymore. You're satiated. It's enough. I don't want to eat anymore. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good steak. It's good uh, this. It's good that. It's all good. I just don't feel like eating. Satiated. Fit. Finish. Chalas. Done. The stimuli eventually becomes something just a placebo. You give enough stimuli to a person, eventually they become numb to it. It's simply not sustainable. Real happiness is something that is sustainable simply because it just exists. And the only way that you can attain it is by connecting to the source of happiness, which is Hashem Barach. So a person that tries to skip Torah or thinks that he's going to attain happiness in another way, or the, the, the heroes that tell you, no, I'm happy. I don't have Torah, but I'm happy. Yeah, I'll see you on a suicide report in a few years from now. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to say, yeah, that's the guy that said he was happy. I'll say, that's you. I'm happy. Usually those are the guys that commit suicide or divorce. There's simply no other way. You will never meet a happy person that does not possess Torah. And the reason why is because happiness is a spiritual feeling. It's a spiritual entity. You cannot sustain it with physicality. Now, the source of all happiness, Hashem Barach, is the one that's going to give you that sense of happiness. If you connect them, the more you connect them, the more happiness you'll have. So the Yetzirah will try to convince you otherwise. The Yetzirah is going to try to convince you that you can attain happiness faster, easier, somewhere else. And he's very, very good at his job. Because he makes you convinced that your happiness is available faster and easier elsewhere. And he proves it to you. How? He gives you a high. You eat food that's not allowed, it tastes much better than the food that is allowed. You went out with a girl that's not allowed, it's, she's much prettier than the one that is allowed. You make money that's not allowed, it's much better money, much more money than the money that is allowed. 
שלמה המלך כל זה, מים גנובים עם טאקו. Stolen water or sweeter. He makes you think that you stealing money is going to get you to succeed much faster. He doesn't talk to you about or remind you of the, uh, the potential life sentence that you'll be in jail for stealing this money or the eternal sentence that you'll be in Geinom for it if you're lending people money with interest like some of these, unfortunately, so-called religious Jews that started these lending businesses and they are not careful enough with lending to other Jews To be in a lending business is 100% perfectly legal according to the Torah. As long as you're lending to non-Jews. But when you live in a country that has 6 million Jews, if you're a religious person, you have to literally be careful and and have it as part of your application, which is actually illegal. But you have to find a way to find out if this person is a Jew. Because if he's a Jew, you're not allowed to lend the money with interest. You will lose Allah Abba. But a lot of people just don't consider this. Why? Because they're, no, but I'm helping them. No, but it's a shtari ska. It's a star this. And they make all these excuses of why they're doing what they're doing. In reality, they're not seeing the wrong in themselves because they're saying, yeah, but even if I lend it to him and he wasn't a Jew, it's by accident. Yeah, but don't you realize that for an accidental sin you would have been slaughtered in the Bet Regash? Everybody makes accidental sins like they're not a big deal. Like as if nothing happens. Oh yeah, it's just an accident. So Hashem just lets it go. No, no one said that. No one said that Hashem just lets go accidental sins. It's just a lesser punishment. It's a punishment. It's not like nothing. Oh, why? You killed somebody by accident? Nah, no problem. I'll let you know that's the one. Go, go, go. Why? You stole $100 million by accident? Ah, no problem. It's okay. It's okay. I'll pay for it. Gotcha. I got a big bank account. Like, what's the matter with you? Who thinks like this? People that don't evaluate themselves. So, the ones that don't evaluate themselves also not going to evaluate the people that are around them. And when you don't evaluate your life, you end up finding out bad things too late. And in this week's parasha, we learn about something called Ben Sorer Umore. Ki yele ish Ben Sorer Umore eninu shomea bekol aviv ubekol imo veisru oto velo ishma alem. The Torah in the beginning of this week's parasha says, and if a, man, if a man will have a wayward and rebellious son who does not hearken to the voice of his father and the voice of his mother, and they discipline him, but he does not hearken to them. Then his father and mother shall grasp him and take him to the elders of the city. And it continues, says that they give him the death penalty. How old is this Ben Sorel Moreh? 9, 10, 11, 12. Not even 13 yet. He's not considered a man. A man, according to the Torah, is 13 years old for a man. And we get it from the book of Genesis when Shimon and Levi went to take revenge against Chamor that raped their sister Dina. And it says that uh, Shimon and Levi went to attack him. Ish Becharvo. Ish Becharvo is each man with a sword in his hand. And so the Midrash says that each one was considered Ish. Levi was 13 years old. He was the younger one. Ah, so that already tells us that at the least, 
13 years old is considered man already, according to the Torah. That's where the term, that's where 13 years old comes from, if you ever wanted to know. So, this Ben Sorero Moreh is not an Ish. He's not, he's not 13, he's younger. He's 12, 11, 10, 9. But he doesn't listen to his uh, mom or dad. He drinks alcohol. He eats meat like an animal. He does whatever he wants. He yells at them. He does whatever he wants. They bring him to the Chachamim. The Chachamim kill him. Everybody stones him to death, kills him. Now, how did this all start? How do we get to this? How do we get to such a person? If you notice, in the beginning of the parasha, it talks about how Hashem says that there is a permission that I'm going to give you, that if you go to war, and there is a non-Jewish woman that you like, you find her pretty, and you want to be with her, then you have to go through this whole process. First, you have to uglify her. You have to shave her hair. You have to make her grow her uh, nails. Let her mourn her father and her husband because you killed them for a month. And after that, you're allowed to be with her. So the Torah says, this is such a strange mitzvah. Like, why would Hashem allow this? This is the one time in the Torah that Hashem simply knew this yetzara that a human being cannot overcome. Unless I told him it's allowed. Why? If he's in a fight, if he's in a, there's a war, in a war you have a lot of adrenaline, you have a lot of fire. After the fire, after you killed this one, killed that one, you saved your own life, so on and so, everything happened. Finally there's peace. You see some beautiful woman, you have all this adrenaline, you have all this testosterone running, you want, you want something. If I say not allowed, then all what happens, all of the soldiers, all of IDF become sinners. Before they came to war, they were only allowed to go to war. According to the Torah, you're only allowed to go to war if you're a tzaddik. You're only allowed to go to war if you're a tzaddik. David Melech says, if you spoke between putting the tefillin of Rosh, the tefillin of Yad, he wouldn't allow you to go to war. Why? He definitely died and killed other people. Meaning that all of the soldiers of Amisai were tzaddikim. Not even a minor sin. So how am I going to send a tzaddik to war to protect Am Yisrael? And then... He's going to go sin with a uh, Goya. No, 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 no. So I have to make, Hashem said, I have to make it aloud. Make it aloud. But then he says, by the way, if you end up doing it though, your son or daughter, problem. Your son is going to be a Ben Sorel Your son's going to be a wayward child. Which means, what, what does this actually mean? Sometimes there are things in the Torah that are allowed, but it doesn't mean that it's Hashem's will. It doesn't mean that Hashem wants you to do it. Sometimes you're allowed to do certain things, but you shouldn't do it anyway. So I'll give you an example. You're allowed to send your kids to a kindergarten if they're two, three, four years old that's mixed. Boys and girls playing together. You're allowed. Allahically speaking, you're allowed. But you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Why? Because little kids at that age are little copy machines of their parents. And the kindergarten teacher doesn't actually decipher whether their parents are religious, not religious. This one's Haredi, this one is Satmer, this one is Chabad, this one is Chiloni, this one is Atheist, this one is whatever. The kindergarten accepts them all. And if the kid sees Ima.
an Abba, affectionate in the, uh, in the middle of the street, the little three-year-old that's really cute also wants to be affectionate because he thinks it's cute because that's what he saw at home. Now, if you're uh, trying to uh, have your Shemayim, you're trying to do tshuva, you don't want your kids, your little cute daughter, to uh, be touched by a three-year-old boy because even though he doesn't mean anything dirty, he's just a cute little kid. He's three years old for heaven's sake. Still, you don't want her to think it's okay. Why? Because she's your, she's your precious little princess. Meaning, you have to understand there are certain things that you're allowed to do it. You just shouldn't. You just shouldn't. So here we see that Hashem says you're allowed to go be with the Goya after the war. Allowed. Marry her and everything. Convert her. But you shouldn't do it. Why? Because the son that's going to come out of there is going to be confused. And he's going to cause a lot of problems. You have to kill them anyway. David Melech, what do you think happened to him? Kodesh Kodeshin David Melech. He made this mistake. He made this mistake, and from him we learn the principle of what happened here. Avshalom came from a woman of war. And Avshalom wanted to kill him. So, the reality is, Abutai, is that if it's written in the Torah, there's a reason for it. It happened. For, there's a reason. So a person that does not have Hashem Barach glue, he's not glued to Hashem Barach in his Torah on a day-to-day basis, he thinks that he's freeing himself from all this responsibility. He doesn't realize that he lives like a goy. Therefore, it's almost a definitive, it's almost guarantee that all of his kids are going to be Ben Solomon. Why? He's the goy, and his wife is a goya. You're sending him to public school. You're sending him to hang out with a, uh, with uh, Johnny. You're sending him to go hang out with the Italians and the blacks and the Puerto Ricans and all of the all the guys that don't keep Torah and mitzvot and they all uh, they all do the cross. You know, yeah, yeah. They all, you know, after they uh, go in the end zone and they all celebrate uh, J.C. Penny and they all tell you, so what are you doing for Christmas? And that's what that's I went to school with them. I know. Ninety percent of my friends were black kids. I wanted to be one of them. I wanted to be black. Half my life I wanted to be black. I'm telling you. That's why I'm very comfortable with them. I don't, I don't have a, a, a complex like most people. No, no, you shouldn't say this. No, no, I have a close friends with them. These were my friends. To this day, I'm friends. Some of my best friends are like this. There's no problem. No, no, we have no, no, there's no, I don't see colors. Other people that see colors, like, oh, you shouldn't say it. I'm like, yeah, it's because you're racist. You shouldn't say it. You're racist. You shouldn't say it. But the reality is, Abutai, I went to school with them. And I liked them. Why? I wanted to be them. They were faster, they were stronger, they were this, they were that. Why would I want to be anything else? Kid wants to play sports, you want to be like the best guy. Who's the best guy? Michael Jordan. Who's the best guy? Uh, Jerome Bettis. Who's the best guy? Uh, David Justice. All of these players that were in, in my days, these were the athletes of the world. These were all people that were the best. I wanted to be them. You send your little shmooly to a public school, and little Shmuley wants to be Johnny. He doesn't want to be Shmuley. So you think that you're escaping some religious freedom? You're escaping some religious, uh, some religious uh, hierarchy of some kind. You're freeing yourself from it. In reality, all you're doing is you're creating a Ben Solomon, because eventually, the non-Torah life is going to show its colors. And your kid, when you tell him to go clean the yard, he's going to tell you, you go clean the yard. I'm going to play with Johnny. 
when we tell uh, Johnny to do his home, we tell your little Shmuley that now calls himself Johnny, make sure to clean your room. Nah, not really. I'm, uh, I'm actually going to take the car out. But you're not allowed to drive. Yeah, I can drive. It's okay. See ya. All of a sudden, the little kid doesn't listen to the parents. The little kid is not really a little kid anymore. He's not cute anymore. He yells at you. He curses at you. He calls the parents by their first name. And people think this is like a bad luck or some type of happenstance or coincidence. No, it's your fault. It's your fault. You send them to public school. You send them to be like the goyim. That's what you have. You have a goy in your house. He's just like them. You're just like them. This is what you have. This is your product. You're not going to get a little uh, Rabbi Akiva coming out of public school. I'm sorry. It's not happening. Even Rabbi Akiva hated Rabbi Akiva before he was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, when he was just Akiva, he said, I hated religious people. You are going to want to be what your surroundings are, especially as a child. And the Ben Soeru More, unfortunately, is genom in this world. And the Gemara says that one of the biggest sufferings that a person can have in this world is having such a child. Almost to the same level, Hashem Yachem, of losing a child. It's almost to the same level of suffering. Having a child like this, a horrible kid who doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to do anything, smokes drugs already, does whatever he wants, brings girls to the house, does whatever he wants, steals money from the parents, drives the car without a license, wrecks the house, ruins the house, ruins everything, disrespects everyone involved. It's almost as bad to have that as actually losing the son. Sometimes there's certain parents that get to such a point, they actually pray for those kids to die. But in reality, it's their fault. It's the parents' fault. Why? Because the kid, until he grows up, he doesn't know there's anything wrong with it. You sent him to hang out with Johnny and Steve. So he hung out with Johnny and Steve. He ended up uh, meeting Samantha. And Samantha happens to be a Catholic girl. What's wrong with a Catholic girl? She's nice. She shows her body to the whole world. Everybody wants her and I got her. So what's the problem, Baba? What's the problem? No, she's not Jewish. So what? You're not acting Jewish. What, because you go to shul once a year, Abba? You make sure Jewish? I'm not, at least I'm not a hypocrite. That's what you're going to tell you to your face, the kid. At least I'm not a hypocrite. I don't go to shul at all. I don't believe. That's it. And a person that goes through this motion thinks that, no, no, we're going to be half religious. We're going to be masoti. No, masoti... Masoti, Rab Nisimi again, I love Shalom, says Masor is a saw. T is the letter T. It says a certain saw that's the shape of a T. A Masoti really means like, like a uh, modern orthodox. That's really what it means. Masoti, traditional modern orthodox. That's what it really means. But he says Masoti also represents somebody that's cutting the, with a saw, the mitzvot. This mitzvot, modesty, not for me. We'll cut this one out. Uh, kosher, only sometimes in the house. We'll cut that one out. This one, we'll cut this one out. They're cutting with the mitzvot. They're cutting the ones they don't like. This is the flaw in modern orthodoxy today. Is that even though the founders, some of them were really big chachamim, they did not intend 
on it turning out to be like it is today. Same thing with Chabad. The original founders of Chabad and Breslev and all of the other popular chassidutz, all the popular shuls, all of the popular parts of Judaism in general, none of them intended for people to cut out mitzvot. None of them intended for people to cut out mitzvot. But as soon as one person made an exception, all bets are off. As soon as one person said to the conservative that you're allowed to drive on Shabbat, conservative became reformed. Until the 1950s and 60s, conservative Jews were just like Orthodox today. We're not talking, we're talking about our parents. When our parents were little kids, or at least my parents were little kids, conservative were keeping mitzvot very similar, not exactly, but very similar to modern Orthodox today. But then they decided that, no, this America is big, we need more people to show up to shul, so it's allowed to drive on Shabbat. After that, everything fell off the cliff. Today, the head of the conservative movement in Jerusalem is openly gay, promoting homosexuality. A few months ago, they started voting for allowing intermarriage, even though it's always been allowed. Now they're talking about that they're allowing to some of them to actually be the rabbis to make a wedding between the Goya and the Jew, or the Jew and, and, and the, uh, the, the Goy. Homosexuals are celebrated. You see actually many of them advertising as Jewish organizations supporting LGBT. Openly supporting the enemies of Hashem. Thinking, no, no, but we're Jewish supporters. We're supporting is equality. They were born gay. So we should support them. The horse was born a horse. How come you don't support him? The dolphin was born a dolphin. How come you don't support the dolphins? The stupidity of people leads to a lot of punishment, unfortunately. Shlomo Amelech says, the stupidity of man this is his language, not just Yaron Oven. The stupidity of man leads him to sin against Hashem, and then he gets angry at Hashem for punishing him. People get angry about the Holocaust. Where was God during the Holocaust? Where were you two weeks before the Holocaust, Am Yisrael? Were you driving on Shabbat? Were you marrying Goyot and Goyim? Did you dress like them wearing the uh, basketball jerseys? Did you go to the beach instead of to the Beknesset? Where were you? That's what Rav Avigdor Miller wrote many, many times in his memoirs, in his, all of his books, all of his writings. You'll see constantly. He says, don't believe that everybody was tzaddikim. Liars. He goes, I lived, I saw it. I saw it. Where were they a week before the Holocaust? Rav Wasserman, Allah Shalom, one of the big Talmudim of the Chafetz Chaim, came back from one of his trips to see his, his rabbi, the Chafetz Chaim, and he says, I know now for sure that the Chafetz Chaim sees from the beginning of the world to the end, like Adam HaRishon. He has Rocha Kodesh. I know for sure. And if I was allowed to tell you, he says, I'll tell you. But I, he told me horrible things. 
another rabbi, another Talmud of Rav Chafetz Chaim that was there, Rav Naftali, says, yes, I was there too. And what the Chafetz Chaim told us about was every single detail that will happen in the Holocaust. How they're going to torture Am Yisrael, starve them, take everything from them, including their clothing, their kids, their wives and husbands, their good memories, their lives, their, 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 their reasoning, their rationale, everything they took from us. He told us all of it. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Okay, Chafetz Chaim told us. What's the big deal? This was 10 years before the Holocaust. That's the big deal. He told them that it was going to happen with details 10 years before the Holocaust, 1931. Karim, when you look at pictures of the Chafetz Chaim, you see a little Jew. You see a little guy, tiny little guy with beard all over the place. Doesn't look like anything special. If he walked around today, people would think he's homeless. If he walked around today, nobody would even listen to him. Who is this guy? What does he want from us? What is he, what is he saying? Does he speak English? Speak English, sir! Who is this guy? No one would listen to him. But the Chafetz Chaim, Chafetz Chaim was Kodesh Kodeshim. One time, Rav Wasserman says, he used to have meetings with Rav Kotler, another Talmud of the Chafetz Chaim. And he says, each time they would compare stories. Rav Kotler told him, for sure, Chafetz Chaim has Rocha Kodesh. He goes, no. He goes, listen, the other day, I was with him, and they were talking about something completely different. Completely, he was talking about something, there was other people just talking about something completely different. Out of nowhere, out of nowhere, the Chafetz Chaim just stops what he's saying and he says something completely unrelated. He says, but you do know that anyone that starts the Gemara Masechet Zvachim and doesn't finish, ooh, wow, what a punishment that is. It's really, really bad in Shemaim. And then he continues to talk about something completely different. And this, and that, and that. It had nothing to do with anything. Of Kutler says, I started Masechet Zvachim. And I didn't finish. I didn't get to it yet. But I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell my kid. I didn't tell any. No one in the world other than Hashem Barach knew. How did he know? Rav Wasserman says, it happened to you too. Same thing to me last time. I also, same thing. I said, different Gemara. Different Masechet. We were talking about something else. And he, out of nowhere he says, but you know, this Gemara, Masechet Moed Katan, you have to finish it. And then he continues, like it's like... It has no relation to anything. But you can only see and do and when you're Kodesh Kodeshim. These stories are wonderful. You may have heard some of them. But there are some stories that people don't like to talk about. Either because they're too mystical or too politically incorrect. The Chafetz Chaim Baruch Hashem has become a banner in the religious world today. People love to talk about Lashon Hara even though virtually no one keeps it. It's almost like an imaginary mitzvah today. People love to talk about it, but how many people actually keep it? It's almost daily that someone texts me Lashon Hara about somebody else. By the way, this other rabbi said such and such and such about you. Okay, Baruch Hashem. By the way, this one such and such said about you. 
is one guy that actually sends me the whole dialogue of other rabbis, what they say about me. What they say about other rabbis. So if you're already going to say it, have a reason. If you have a reason for it, then it's allowed to say it in public. Why are you saying it behind people's back? If it's allowed, it's a mitzvah. But what people don't like to talk about is some of the things that are above and beyond our logic. For example, in Radin, at one point, where the Chafetz Chaim was, there was a plague. A lot of people were dying. A lot of kids were dying. Daily, there were kids dying every day. People were dying. One time, a Chafetz Chaim takes, writes a letter, and he calls one of his Talmidim, and the Talmud said it. I just forget the name of the Talmud. And he says, listen, take this letter to the Bet Midrash. At midnight tonight. Sit over there. You're going to see things that are not from this world. But don't be afraid. Sit there and give this letter to the most important figure that you see. Hafez Chaim says, the Talmidim do. Talmid takes the, the, the letter. He's thinking, maybe I'm going to see some big rabbis from heaven or something. I'm going to see Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabbi Akiva. I don't know, what am I going to see? So he comes and he sits, and he sits in the Bet Midrash, learning a little bit, learning a little bit. All of a sudden, he starts seeing things move. In the Bet Midrash. The Bima, like we have here, starts moving. The windows start opening. The walls start shaking. All of a sudden, all the windows open and a bunch of demons, thousands and thousands and thousands of demons go into the place, filling up every little ounce of space. And then the bima turns into some type of throne and the Malach Mavit himself comes and sits down. Now this guy, Tzadik, Kodesh, he sees this. He's hiding. He has no idea what to do. He's shaking. He has no idea. Move, not move. Breathe, not breathe. Maybe it's better off just die. It's better off just die. Hatano, Avinu, Pashano. Like what? What's the, what is the likelihood of me surviving this? Bimet, if you were this, all of a sudden you have millions of demons showing up right now. I know. I know. Sonny likes demons. He might catch one of them. But if you have a million of them, it's kind of hard to catch. They catch you. You have to have another chidush about them now. Now you have a problem. Then you have Malachamavit Hashem Yachem. He comes on his throne. He doesn't know what to do. And then he says the story himself. And he says, and then the Malachamavit says, No, what do you have for me today? And he starts seeing the demons bring him Neshamot of the kids they killed that day. Is a Neshama. Is a Neshama. Is a two-year-old. Is a six-month-old. Is a nine-year-old. Is an eight-year-old. Is a boy. Is a girl. Is the boy and the girl together with the mom. Is the family. Shem Yachem. He goes, good. You have much more work tomorrow. And the guy, the tzaddik, hasn't been noticed yet. He starts crawling because he can't get up. He starts crawling and he just tries to move his hand but from the fear of seeing all these things, the letter falls from his hand and hits the floor. 
all of a sudden, all of the heads turn around to look at him. Like one of those movie scenes. They all look at him. His flesh and blood is among us. He just pointed the letter. Can't speak, can't do nothing. His skin. He's already doing vidui. Malachamavetzi, he doesn't even have to wait for him. They take the letter, they bring it to Malachamavet. He opens the letter, he reads the letter, he says, Rabotai, we have no permission to be here. And they all leave. Just like that. The plague ends, just like that. Why? Because of a little tiny Jewish man. And no one would even count to give a lecture today. Called Chafetz Chaim. Chafetz Chaim, how did he get to this Kedusha that the Malach HaMavid is scared of him? He says, I'm not allowed to be here. You're not allowed to be here. Why Chafetz Chaim is here? Why? From reading black and white words. Now if that wasn't enough, Rabotai Karim. I'll give you another story. You'll see this story, if you want, in Rav Wasserman's bio. Reb Elchanan, it's called. Fantastic book. Haven't finished it yet, but it's soon. It's my Shabbat reading with my wife. We've been enjoying it for some time. In the beginning of the book, maybe the first 50 pages or so, it talks about stories of the Chafetz Chaim. And he says at one point, if you remember, I told you, in Russia, they had communist Rashaim there. Now, who was communism started by? Jews. Jews started communism. And one of the leaders of the Evtsekzia, which was, in essence, the Jewish Nazis, the anti-Jews, anti-Judaism Jews, that took rabbis and killed them, took rabbis and tortured them, took religious people and killed them and tortured them, and so on and so forth. They call themselves Yevsekzia. If you remember, I told you this about this. We learned about it first from um, to become a Jew, to remain a Jew, by Yitzhak Zilba, Allah Shalom. So anyway, at the time, the leader of the Yevsekzia had everything going for him. His name was Trotsky. Trotsky is one of the famous people among the Zionists, among the pro-Zionism, anti-Torah mentality. Everything he had was going for him. He became literally one of the leaders in Russia. The Chafetz Chaim saw what he was doing to Am Yisrael. He got a bunch of holy people together. He told them, let's go to the Bet Midrash. They got to the Bet Midrash just like this. And Rav Wasserman was one of them. And he said, we started praying special prayers. We took out the Sefer Torah and the Shofarim, the horns. And we started praying for Hashem to destroy him. For Hashem to destroy another Jew, Trotsky. And from that night on, Everything that Trotsky t- touched turned to nothing. Eventually, getting to a point, they threw him out. He fled and then got assassinated in Mexico like a dog. 
So for all of those people that are scared to talk about Rishayim in the world because they're scared of Lashonara, they're scared of uh, violating something, just, fo- just follow the teacher, the master of Lashonara, prayed against the Rishayim, prayed for them to be destroyed. Last but not least, another fantastic story is that another person came to the Chafetz Chaim crying and said to him, Kvodarav, I'm very sick. Now he didn't know this person. He says, Kvodarav, I need a blessing. And Chafetz Chaim says to him, Israel Meir, he called himself in the third person. Israel Meir, lo ra'uy bracha. Israel Meir, He's not, uh, doesn't have, doesn't have the ability to give blessings. I can't give blessings. Who gives blessings? Me give blessings. Israel may can't give a blessing. I, of course, can't give. No one can give a blessing to somebody that has a son that uh, is a mechalel Shabbat, opens a store on Shabbat, and the grandson's a mechalel Shabbat. What can give a blessing to such a person? Only the Shabbat that's written in the Torah, Parashat Yitro, Parashat. Uh, uh, um, uh, and also, um, the other one talks about the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Ten Commandments. Vaitchanan says that Shabbat is an obligation of a person and his son and his daughter and his servant. How can Israel Meir give a blessing to someone's a mechalel Shabbat? If you say, oh, you keep Shabbat. Yeah, it's good you keep Shabbat, but uh, can't give a blessing to somebody who's a Mechalel Shabbat. The person did Shuba on the spot, saying, taking on himself to get his family to keep Shabbat. Now, his grandson that told the story said, we saw Ruach HaKodesh live. No one told him that he's a Mechalel Shabbat. He doesn't know the person. He himself was not a Mechalel Shabbat, he was a religious guy. No one told him, the meaning his son opens a store on Shabbat and a grandson and this. And no one told him these things. How do you get, how do you get such knowledge? Abutai, all of this introduction is an introduction for you to understand that the journey of a Jew may not be a simple one, but it's worth it. Yehuda ben Tema says, Uaya Omer, Ben Chameshanim le Mikra, Ben Eser Shanim le Mishnah, Ben Shlosheshre le Mitzvot, Ben Chameshesre le Gmara, Ben Shmonaisre le Chupa, Ben Esrim Lirdof, Ben Shloshim la Koach, Ben Arbaim le Bina, Ben Chamishim la Etza, Ben Shishim le Zikna, Ben Shivim le Seva, Ben Shmonim le Gvora, Ben Tishim. Lashuach ben mea keilu met vavar ubatel minaolam. Translation. He, meaning Yehuda ben Tama, the same sage that told us the last Mishnah, that talked about being arrogant or being the last two Mishnayot, being arrogant going to Genom and uh, being humble going to Gan Eden. Even though the uh, Tosfot Yom Tov says that he has sources that it's Shmuel Katana, not Yehuda ben Tema. Regardless, it's one of the Kodesh Kodeshim of the uh, Torah. The sages of the Torah says, a five-year-old begins with scripture. A ten-year-old begins Mishnah. A thirteen-year-old 
becomes obliged to observe the commandments, a 15-year-old begins to study Gemara, an 18-year-old goes to marriage, to the marriage canopy, to chuppah, a 20-year-old begins to pursuit, we'll explain what that means, what does it mean, pursuit, because there's a couple of translations, a 30-year-old attains full strength, a 40-year-old attains understanding, a 50-year-old can offer counsel, a 60-year-old attains seniority, a 70-year-old attains ripe old age, an 80-year-old shows strength, a 90-year-old becomes stooped over, a 100-year-old is as if he were dead, passed away, and ceased from the world. In essence, they're giving us a map. What does the life of a Jew look like? Now what about the old tzaddikim that lived till 102 years old, for example, like Rabbi Yashiv, Allah Shalom, died at 102 years old, I believe. At the same time that he died, Bibi Netanyahu's father died also. He was also 102 years old. Now, if you saw the Rabbi Yashiv before he died, Kodesh Kodeshim, sharper than any of us could ever be. You combine, combine all of our brains put together, make a little mishmash out of it, we're not even equal to 10% of his. A minute before he died. Sharp as a knife, as a sword. Well, it says over here though, that someone in the hundreds as if he died already, someone is 90 already, he's bent over. So what does it mean? This is not referring to the tzaddikim. The gdolei adol, the chachamim explained to us, are exceptions to the rule. They live for as long as Hashem decides that the world needs them. But you see that the life of Rav Yashi, for example, when he died, he had 1,000 grandkids. The 1,000 people continuing his Torah. 1,000 people continuing his lineage, his holiness, his work. A thousand different ways. Each one, Talmit Chacham, Tzadikah, Kodesh, Kodesh Kodashim, one is better than the other. Every one of them, Frum, Kodashim, everything good. Bibi Netanyahu's uh, father, maybe he had four. Maybe he had four, and I think one of them is homosexual. So he's, he's definitely not going to continue the lineage. They're both 102. One's religious. Gdolador. He has something to go to. To Allah Look Hashem. I have a thousand. They're going to continue your Torah. Bibi Netanyahu is... Uh, where is he going to continue? Your Kfirah. Where are you going to continue? Thank God there's not more of them. Everybody who says, No, no, but Bibi Netanyahu, he has Gemara behind him. Yeah, it's behind him in the shelves. It's always behind him. It should be in front of him. He speaks, he has Sifret Torah behind him. It's always behind him. It should be in front of him. So here we see that Yehuda ben Tamar Chachamim explained to us that there is a map. Even though we don't go exactly by this, the uh, traditional way of uh, yeshiva today is different from this, of when they teach what and, and so on. But still, this already shows that already a couple of thousand years ago, there was a certain system. Part of the reason of why we don't go by this is because we simply, most of us just can't handle it. But nonetheless, some people that can or even do more than this, 
they can become big uh, tzaddikim. For example, Arab Ephraim, God bless him, already started learning Gemara when he was, I think, nine years old, ten years old. Nine years old, I believe. Already started finishing Masechet before Bar Mitzvah. Here it says, don't start Gemara until you're 15. Arab Ovadia, Allah Shalom, in the bio about him, when he was nine years old, he already knew half the Shas, if not all of it, by heart. When he went to uh, Baghdad with his, uh, with his uh, father, he studied uh, in uh, Bet Midrash. There was a bunch of old people there studying Tamidei Chachamim. And he overheard them make a mistake. He says, no, no, you're translating the Pshat wrong because the Tosfot, he's nine years old, little baby. The Tosfot says, he's like, wait, wait, hold on a second. Wait, how do you know this? He goes, no, I just know a little bit. That's all I know, a little bit. He goes, tell us more in a little bit. And he starts telling them more and more and more. The head, the top rabbi, the Bagdolador of Baghdad at the time, said he's going to be Gdolador. He's going to be one of the biggest rabbis in the world. He wasn't wrong. So, here Yudab ben Tamar says that a five-year-old begins with scripture. Meaning that at five years old, before five years old, you can't really teach the kid much. can't even discipline the kid much. There's only a certain amount that you can possibly do. The Chachamim explained that a, uh, a kid that's three years old, two years old, you can't hit them. You're not allowed to hit them. Why? They don't have a concept of doing wrong. They don't have a concept of doing wrong. Hitting your kid when he's three years old is the wrong thing to do. Because they have no idea that they're doing wrong. They're just working off of desire. They're working off of stimuli. The Ben Yishchayel Lava Shalom said that a kid until six years old is like a monkey. Even if he's cute like my kids, Baruch Hashem, or your kids, they're still little monkeys. And my wife and I laugh about it all the time. Little monkeys, cute little monkeys. We love them just as much as you love your kids. But you, people that pretend that they're kids are uh, special and special and special. Okay, and because they're special, everybody's kid's special. But because your kid's special, he's allowed to ruin the Bekneset and no one's able to learn uh, learn or, or pray because of him. That's not special. That's annoying. There's nothing special about it. Reality is, there's only a limited amount of discipline that you can give your kid when he's three or four years old. So to bring that three or four-year-old to the Bekneset is the wrong move 100% of the time. Unless he's naturally... A very, very, like, quiet kid. There's certain kids that are just really, really quiet. They just don't talk. You start becoming scared. Maybe they're not able to talk. But there's some kids like that. It's rare, but there's some kids like that. But if your kid is like an average three-year-old, four-year-old, don't bring him to Bikneset. It's not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. Why? Because your kid's going to run around like all the other kids and torture everybody else. Especially people like me that actually try to pray. So... Before five years old, we're limited. The other thing that it's talking about is that Rashi explains that after the third birthday...
You have to start teaching them the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So as soon as they turn three, so that begins their fourth year, you start teaching them Aleph Bet. Also the, the, the vowel system. Why? Because by the time they arrive to their fifth year, they should already be able to start reading. Because by at five years old, they have to start learning the five books of Moses. Bereshit, Barai, Lokim, and Teshamayim, Betaaretz. Now, of course, they're not going to understand the meaning of every single word, but they need to be able to start making the sounds. They need to be able to have some type of concept of what's going on. Now, in today's world, actually, there are certain parts that are much easier, and there are certain parts that are much more difficult than the previous generation. The difficult part is that we simply do not have the brain power like our forefathers. We just don't. People that think that we're smarter today than we were before are simply stupider than what they think. We're not smarter than the previous generation. There's no chance of that. There's no proof of that. In fact, it's the opposite. If you look at the level of innovation today versus the level of innovation of simply a hundred years ago, you cannot compare. You cannot compare the two. A hundred years ago, they came up with completely brand new ideas that didn't exist. Today, we come up with a new app on an existing platform that every one of the members of the 8 billion population knows. Today, we come up with a new way to count when everybody already knows how to count. Today, we have a new way to order groceries. Okay, good for you. We could grow some groceries by pressing a button. I enjoy it too. But it's not, you're not exactly a, uh, you know, the Warner Brothers or something like that. You're not such a big deal. People think that because things look cooler and they're easier and they're more convenient, that makes us smarter. It's the opposite is true. To innovate from nothing makes you smart. If you look at the innovations from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, much more, more, much more, more significant than today. So on that end, our brain power is simply not the same as it used to be. But, Baruch Hashem, Hashem had mercy on us, and learning has actually become easier. And the reason why is because since we are, after all, very simple creatures in that aspect of it, Hashem gave us neshamot and he, you know, when we're little kids. When we're little kids, our brain is like a sponge. And you can teach a kid to memorize quite a few things in a very short period of time without much effort at young ages. The younger they are, the easier it is for them to understand. For example... I remember when I was uh, 10 years old and we moved to the United States, I knew maybe three or two letters out of the alphabet. But within a few months, I spoke the language. Within a year, it was my, became my first language. But if you bring a 20-year-old to America, he'll have broken English for the rest of his life. It may be good. He may be able to, uh, you know, if he reads enough books, he'll speak the language correctly, but he'll still never become his first language. He'll still never become a superior language. It'll always be secondary. Even though the difference is only 10 years. Like if it's 20 to 30, there's almost no difference. 30 to 40 is virtually no difference at all. 50 to 60, it might as well be no difference. But 10 to 20, life, lifetime of a difference. Why? 10 is the end of childhood. 20 is already the beginning of manhood. Two difference. Big difference. Big different brain. So, 
The other aspect that makes it easier today is that you can teach your kids by using the technology that Hashem provided for us. I recommended uh, some time ago, maybe about six months or eight months ago, an online course that you can buy for about 40 or $50, very, very cheap and reasonable, by Rabbi Gold, to teach you the Hebrew language, the biblical language. It's an online course. Uh, I posted it online several times. I don't make any money out of it. I just like it. I think it's very good. And uh, quite frankly, it works. Even my little one-year-old already knows most of the Hebrew alphabet now. Baruch Hashem. So if, you, if this is what you let your kids watch, they'll learn the language at zero. They'll learn the language at one, at two, at three, and so on. Why? Because it's, you know, they need to be stimulated by something. You can't just leave them in a cage all day and just all wait for them to become 20 and start working. You have to do something with them. So, Baruch Hashem, my wife, Eshet Chayim, so she provides them different education all day. And part of the thing was to learn the letters. So a little kid, little one and a half year old, knows the alphabet almost as good as me. It's unbelievable. How? He watches, little, he watches Rabbi Gold. Say Aleph. Why is Aleph? Bed, Gimel, Dalit. He points at all the things. Baruch Hashem, he knows all these things. So... The Aleph Bet is supposed to be taught at a three-year-old in that day because it was much more difficult. Somebody had to be there. Somebody had to walk them through it and so on and so forth. Whereas today, you don't have to necessarily nurse them into every single one of the steps. There are certain programs you can use. If you already use technology, you have a phone, you have a, 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 a screen that they can watch a computer, you could put one of these programs for them to learn the alphabet already at a very young age instead of watching Shtuyot, watching nonsense, cats and dogs running after each other. Have them watch Torah. Have them watch some programs. It's also a wonderful program for kids that are a little older. Not, uh, not quite so young, probably uh, closer to 10. Um, that's called Torah Live. It's called Torah Live. I only found out about it recently, maybe in the last uh, six months or so. Uh, it was promoted by uh, Art Scroll. And uh, Torah Live has been around for some time now. And it's a, uh, it's a teaching program using, using, using media. And they have different uh, videos, high-end videos that they make for teachers to show students in schools. But you could also use this for yourself to teach your kids. Um, so it's uh, called Torah Live. It's very, very good. But it's for kids that are a little older. Either way, Rabotai, there is no excuse. Today you have access to Torah much more than the stipler had. Much more than the Gaonmi Vilna had. Much more than the Rambam had. You have more access to Torah than anything else. More ease of access to Torah than anyone else in history. Your kids do as well. So if your kids become donkeys, it's your fault. If you're a donkey, it's your fault. Nobody else's fault. You cannot go up to Shemaim like, I didn't know. So even though we're a lowly generation, we don't have the same brain power and strength and so on and so forth as our sages before us, Hashem complemented it with an enormous amount of Torah that's easily accessible. So at five years old, we're supposed to already start teaching our kids to learn Chumash, the five books of Moses, to understand the story, the basics of it. Today, Baruch Hashem, there are many books for kids that are written for, uh, that talk about the parasha, little midrashim, talk about the story. Some of these midrashim, like one that I... uh, got a few months ago for my kids 
Honestly, it's better than some of the uh, grown-up midrashim. There's so many more details. The, the, the person that put it together is a big Talmud Chacham. Like some of these kids' books are, are good for adults. Don't think that just because it's a kids' book, it's, uh, you should frown upon it. Like for example, to this day, I recommend for people to buy the 30, uh, 39 Melachot book for kids. Because it's the best way to learn the Melachot of Shabbat for adults. So it's a uh, easy, it's something visual. Either way, Rabotai, learning begins as soon as the kid is able to comprehend. As soon as the kid is able to comprehend, you have to start teaching them things. And don't just teach them to eat candy. Don't just teach them to uh, watch cats and dogs. Teach them to do things that are useful in the world. Because whatever you invest into your child is what are you going to get as a result. If you invest nothing, you put your kid on autopilot, you just put him in front of an uh, uh, iPad all day, and let him play with the iPad all day, just so you know, at one point he's going to become a little Hitler. He's going to become a little Hitler, and he's going to want to kill you. Either literally or, uh, or, or psychologically. One or the other is going to happen. Why? Because if you give him complete freedom to play with an iPad or an iPhone, and you don't monitor what he plays with, you don't monitor what he watches, then what he's going to watch and what she's going to watch is pretty much things that are going to destroy their minds. There are certain things that little kids simply cannot handle. They cannot handle watching adults act like they act in the world today. So if you're going to let your kid have complete freedom into the world, just know that you're just destroying him. It was better off you didn't have the kid. It was better off you didn't have the kid. Matter of fact, the Gemara says it's better off the parent died and never had the kid if that's the type of teaching they're going to give him. Meaning a teaching without Torah. So, sending the kid to yeshiva is good, but it's not enough. The yeshiva is going to teach him a certain amount, but if the house is opposite of the yeshiva, meaning a yeshiva is religious, but at home we're secular or half-religious, most likely the kid's going to grow up to become an atheist. And the reason why is because the kids that come from these types of houses where the uh, teacher is religious, the yeshiva is religious, but at home we're not religious, at home we're eating taref, at home we're not, you know, not really makpidim on, on sniut and so on. What ends up happening is the kid becomes very confused and he has to make a choice. And he has to make a choice at a time where he doesn't know what's right or left. Now if you tell a 30 or a 40 year old to make a choice, the 30-year-old should, at that point, be able to make the right choice. Why? Because he already has some tools and experience to be able to make some, more likely to make a better choice. But if you ask an 11-year-old to make a choice, most likely, it's more likely, actually, for the Mashiach to come 15 times in the next 20 minutes than for him to make the right choice. Why? He has no experience whatsoever. He's going to make his choice based on, on things, based on colors, based on popularity, based on what looks good and acts good, but not necessarily good. In essence, without thinking it through. He doesn't have the experience to actually make the right choice. And even if he makes the right choice, he makes it for the wrong reason. So, it's important for you to make the right choices for your kids. If you're not, gonna, if you're not willing to make the choices for your kids, don't have them. Now, when he's young, when she's young... 
you have to make sure that whatever they have in yeshiva is what they have home. If they don't, they're going to pick a side. What are they going to pick a side? They're going to pick the side that's less restricting. If the uh, rabbi tells them there's rules, and at home there's no rules, what do you think the kid's going to pick? Any normal kid that picks the rules is not normal. There's something wrong with him. He's going to pick no rules. If the rabbi only eats kosher, but Ima and Abba don't eat kosher, what's the kid going to want? I want McDonald's. He wants not kosher McDonald's. If the rabbanit is modest, but Ima walks around like she's uh, just came out of the shower all the time, then I want to be like Ima. Why? Because uh, it's less restricting. But sometimes the mistake is not made by the parents per se, or the school. Sometimes the mistake is made by the friends. Sometimes the parents themselves have done tshuva, or are trying to do tshuva, but it's not complete tshuva. Why? Because they still have scars from their past coming to their house. They still have their best friends and their cousins and their brothers and sisters coming to the house with their secular goyish mentality. And the brother or the sister or the cousin or the old best friend comes to the house with a tank top and tattoos all over their shoulders. Wearing a, you know, because he wants to give you some respect, he wears a quarter on his head, he calls it a kippah. And he comes for Shabbat. And you're thinking you're doing good. Why? Because you brought this little, uh, you know, this avariant to your house. You brought the gangster of the, of the neighborhood to your house. You think you're doing a mitzvah. You have just put your entire family in danger. Why? Every normal little kid, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 12, the older the more, is going to think he's cool. That's a problem. Every 10-year-old is going to think the tattoos are cool. Because at 10 and 12, they're cool. At 10 and 12, having drawings of lions on your shoulders is pretty cool. Having 87 earrings is cool. Wearing some clothes that look comfortable is cool. He wants to be like him now. Your daughter now wants to be like your sister that wore a mini skirt to your house. If you have a stupid wife that wants to bring her friends with mini skirts to the house and thinks it's okay because she wants to bring immodest women to the house and you're home also as a husband, you guys should have a conversation. Why? One of you has to go to a mental institution because you have no idea what you're doing. Any wife that allows uh, any, any type of attractive woman or even unattractive woman into their house has a problem. There's a problem. For what? What are you bringing your friends to the house for? For, for, your, for your husband to wash his eyes? To enjoy their looks? For what? For what purpose do you have to bring these women to your house? People bring people to the house. No, we're just having coffee. Yeah, have coffee when he's not home. Have coffee when he's not home. Why? Because also you can have a little 11, 10-year-old daughter that you have, and she's going to see your friend with the tank top. And she's going to ask you, Hima, how, how come I'm wearing long sleeves all the time? How come I'm always wearing long sleeve, and your sister, your sister is wearing tank top. Can I wear it? I want to wear a tank top. I want to wear shorts. 
She's 11 years old. She's 10 years old. What do you expect? Abutai, your kids were given to you on consignment. The Chachamim explained to us that the kids were given to us as a treasure from Hashem, but it's a, it's a deal. If we take care of them, we get to keep them. I don't want to say the other part. People always ask, well, how come the kid died so young? Hashem did him a favor. His parents, his parents, and I'm not talking about all the time, other times obviously there's different reasons, but sometimes you see these young kids die, you ask yourself, well, why, why, why? In reality, if you know Torah, you say Hashem did him a favor. There's no way for the kid to grow up religious with those parents. He lived 20, 30 years, make more sins by the time he's 30, maybe it's not even possible to do tshuva anymore. He gets so addicted to the sin. But needless to say, every single woman needs to know that if you want to bring Mashiach, you have to have kids. Why? That's what Torah says. In the book of Eliyahu Navi, Tana Deve Eliyahu, Perek Tet Yudalit, Part Vav, 14. Vav, it's in Seder Eliyahu Zuta. Eliyahu Navi, Allah Shalom, says, Ukmo shenigalu Yisrael ממצרים, בזכות שהיו פרים וברבים, כמו כן יגלו לעתיד בזכות שהם פרים ורבים. It's just like Am Yisrael was saved at the time of Egypt. The Exodus happened at the time of Egypt. Because of the women bringing children to the world, just just like that, the Mashiach will come because women are bringing children to the world. What was so special about them bringing children to the world? At the time of Mashiach, it's easier to understand, but we need to understand why was why was uh, extraordinary at the time of Egypt. At the time of Egypt. Hamim explained to us in the Midrash that Am Yisrael was in bad shape. We were in a 49th level of Tum'ah, of impurity. We didn't keep almost anything. Many of us became idol worshippers. We were in the worst possible level that we were until today. Almost to the extent that Hashem had to destroy us. If he didn't save us, he would have had to destroy us. One more sin. Why did he save us? Because of the women bringing kids to the world. What do women bringing kids to the world have anything to do with righteous, wicked? What does it have anything to do with it? If you read the entire book of Numbers, Sefer Bamidbar, you see that Am Yisrael is constantly tested and constantly fails. One major test. What is it? The test of Emunah. Hashem gives them food, say, oh yeah, but where's the water? Hashem gives the water, oh yeah, but where's the food? Hashem gives them this, they want something else. Hashem gives them Moshe, but they're not sure, maybe they want Korach. Every time it's something else, we're always complaining about things we don't have because somehow we don't have any trust in Hashem. We have no emunah in Hashem. Hashem says you have a land of milk and honey, yeah, but there's giants there. What, you don't think Hashem can kill them? 
It's constantly tested and constantly failed because we had no emunah. But that's the one test that we passed in Egypt. How? The women were Kodesh Kodeshim. The women in Egypt were still modest. The women in Egypt were still connected to Hashem. And they understood that the times are hard. Every woman has a kid. Every time there's a birth, six babies. If three of them are boys, they're all going to die. Three of them are girls, they're going to live. That means that every time you have kids, you have to do alvaya the next day. You have to bring them to the cemetery the next day. Why? Because the Egyptians are killing them. Either because Paro wants to take their blood and bathe in it, or because they just want to punish us for other reasons, because they want to kill everybody because they think it's Moshe Rabbeinu, and so on and so forth. So the husbands already saw their kids dying. On top of that, on top of that, the husbands were getting beat up day and night. If they didn't meet their quota, they put the kid instead of the block. If they didn't meet their quota, they kill one of their kids. Hashem and what they would do with the kids, they take the kids, little babies, smash their heads against the stone to blow it up into nothing. The Midrashim say such horrible things. By the way, all of it happened in the Holocaust. Again. Horrible things. The husbands are coming home with missing limbs. The guy went to work with two arms and two legs. He's missing an arm. He's missing a finger. Why? Yeah, he got injured at the job. But he only got injured, but he broke a nail. But he said, ow. He said, ow, for two seconds. So the Egyptian says, oh, you're wasting time saying, ow, let me take off the rest of the hand. I'll give you a real reason to say, ow. So now this miskin, this husband... He's missing an arm. He's missing a leg. He's blind in one eye. He's blind in two eyes. Hashem Yachem, what's happening to him? He goes to work. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lucky that he survives. He comes home. Who wants to have kids? You want me to bring kids to this world? I, didn't, I barely survived today. You want to bring kids to the world? The women said, the women, the women, the Jewish women said, Hashem wants us to have kids. It's not about do I want to bring kids to the Egyptian world. Hashem wants us to bring kids or else I wouldn't be able to have kids. But how do I convince this husband that wants to commit suicide? How do I convince him to have kids? They would beautify themselves and then they would prepare. In those days, they didn't have mirrors like today. They would use uh, copper. Copper. And they would look at the reflection of themselves on the copper and they would look at themselves, especially as soon as the after they beautified themselves with makeup and so on, just for their husband, not for Shmuley in the, in the street. And they, they beautified themselves. As soon as the husband came in, they would be looking in the mirror, and he would see himself and her at the same time. She says, wow. And they would always use the same joke. Wow, I think you're better looking than me today. Immediately the husband would forget about the horrible day he had at work that he lost a finger he lost an arm, he lost an eye, he lost a this, he lost his morale. He doesn't care anymore. Why? He sees a beautiful wife. He sees a beautiful wife, and a beautiful wife reminds him ah, of the natural desire of a man. And the women brought kids to the world during Egypt, even though they knew it's very likely they're not going to survive. Why? It's the will of Hashem. And the emunah that the women had at the time of Egypt, Eliyahu Navi says here, that was what got us out of Egypt. He says that same thing is going to get us saved by the Mashiach. But why the Mashiach? 
Baruch Hashem, no one's uh, torturing us. Baruch Hashem, no one's missing anything. What is, how is it relevant? Chachamim explained in the Gemara Masechet Nida. En ben David ba, the son of David, the Mashiach, is not coming until all of the neshamot are emptied out of the goof. Until all of the neshamot are emptied out out of a place in heaven called goof. Which neshamot? All of the neshamot of Am Yisrael. All of the neshamot that were on Mount Sinai that haven't completed their tikkun have to be emptied out and given an opportunity to do tshuva. Until all of them have the opportunity, Mashiach's not coming. Which means that a woman that wants to delay having kids because she's only 21 years old and she wants to have fun with her new husband, or she doesn't want to get married because she's only 21, and a guy that only wants to have fun because he's only 25, and he's not ready to get married, you should know the Mashiach is not coming because of you. A guy that wastes seed, he should know the Neshavot are coming out. It's only part is you're killing them. Now, when a person, according to the Torah, commits murder, everyone knows, Goyim and Jews know both, both know that committing murder with cold blood, taking a knife and chopping somebody's head off is not a good thing. It says in the Ten Commandments, you shouldn't do it. But what about if he did it to his own son? What if he took his own son and he chopped his own son's head off? You think he's judged better? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says in the Zohar Kadosh, he's judged much, much worse than a normal murderer. Because he murdered his own son, his own daughter. Any time a guy convinces his wife or his girlfriend or whoever to have an abortion, they're not only judged as a murderer, but they're also judged as a murderer that's murdered their own kids. Now they're saying, yeah, but it was only two months pregnant. All you need to do is watch the video we posted from al-Baghdadi yesterday, and you realize that after 40 days, it's 100% a human being. With arms and legs and eyes and ears and everything is just little. Some of the pictures that I saw, not just in this video, but in other things that I've watched over the years, if you don't cry watching it, then most likely you're not alive. It's very, very hard to see, but it's necessary for anyone that has considering doing it, has done it, knows people. You need to realize that an abortion is 100% murder. But not just murder of some stranger or even an enemy that tried to kill you. It's murdering your own kids. And uh, there's a certain doctor that works for this company called Live Action that's anti-abortions. They send a lot of good material out and they fight against the evil empire of Planned Parenthood. I believe it's run by a Jewish woman, by the way. One of the people that's a big uh, supporter of them is a, is a doctor who performed, I think, close to 2,000 abortions. Bamash, Hitler himself. But he did tshuva, and now he's actually telling all of the secrets of what actually happens, all the stuff that they don't tell you. Because today, abortion has become so accepted among society 
that as soon as a woman tells their insurance company in America that she's pregnant, the insurance company sends letters in the mail. The insurance company sends letters in the mail to the to the woman that said she's pregnant. She wants she wants to make go to the gynecologist, go to the doctor, and so on. They send up letters in the mail saying, "By the way, we also uh, 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 provide services to for, for abortions." They call it different words. We provide service, family services. We provide family services. Family service. They're talking about killing the kids. They're not going to say, no, we provide murder in cold blood. By the way, we take the kid, we crush his skull to 16 different pieces and then sell it. No, they don't tell you that. They say, well, no, we provide services. They sugarcoat it so nice it looks like a delicious ice cream. They make murder sound like fun. Sounds like these rabbis that talk about Gainom like a place of uh, embarrassment instead of a place of fire. And for anyone who thinks for a moment that Hasidut does not talk about Gainom, you should know that the Baal Shem Tov, the father of all Hasidut, talked about Gainom quite often. Literally talked about Gainom, saying it's fire. And the parashah talks about Chilul Shabbat. He specifically says the Baal Shem Tov. That Chilul Shabbat is fire. Why is it fire? He says just like Genom is fire on fire the whole week, but then is shut off on Shabbat, the Mechalel Shabbat stays in Genom and gets, uh, is on fire on Shabbat. And on and on, Bezad Hashem, one day we're going to do a shiur about it to explain to all of these lunatics that think that Chassidut or any part of Judaism doesn't mention Geinom, Be'ezat Hashem will talk about it because it's a necessary thing to learn, including the rabbis that have emailed me thinking that they're right about their uh, their miscommunication with the public. But anyway, Rabotai, when a person commits murder slash abortion, you should realize that what you're doing is you're committing murder in cold blood, whether it was planned, not planned, rape, not rape, your husband, someone else, you're never allowed to murder anyone. Unless it's not murder, unless you're saving your own life, because uh, the doctors have determined that if you have this kid, you're going to die, which is very rare today. Very, very rare. Many women die during the abortion, but that's something that they don't mention to you. They don't mention that to the public. They mention it like it's nothing. They mention it like it's apala. Apala sounds like some you know you dropped a, a, a you know a pen on the floor. You drop something. Apala. They'll tell you just drop the hammer on top of a, of, a, of a living being. They don't tell you that. They don't show you the visuals of what they see. They don't tell you that they actually they don't tell you that they actually hear the heartbeat. By the way, this company that goes against Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics, they actually did a re- re- con- continuous research. An overwhelming majority, literally almost 100% of the women that were about to perform actual abortions, that were allowed to listen to the heartbeat of what's inside them, almost 100% did not, did not do the abortion. Why? Why? Because until they heard the heartbeat, they were led to believe there's nothing there. It's like a little peanut. You know, you have a little peanut. Sometimes it's, you know, the shell of the peanut is stuck in your tooth. That's what they make it seem to be. 
They don't tell you you're actually killing a human being. They don't tell you there's going to be, uh, they, they sell the feet and the arms and the fingers and the skull and the eyes to different uh, bio-research companies so they can make food products out of it and other types of uh, research on it. They don't tell you that stuff. But you should know, if you committed this murder in the past, there's nothing you can do about it as far as the one that was already murdered, but you can do tshuva. What's the tshuva? The biggest part of the tshuva is obviously, number one, learn about it, realize what you did. And second of all, cry to Hashem with tears as long as you have to until He gives you the opportunity to stop other people from doing it. Cry to Hashem to introduce you to people that want to have an abortion and convince them to stop. Convince them to not have it. It's 100% murder. And it's not only murder, it's murdering of your own kids. Needless to say, men that waste seed on purpose. It's not murdering of just one neshama, it's murdering of millions of neshamot. All of these neshamot in the goof, in the heavenly body called goof, instead of them coming to the world and becoming tzaddikim, they're all turning into demons. Because the neshamot come to the world, they're all stuck here. You spill them in the bathroom, you spill it on the floor, you spill it on nothing. The neshamot are here. And they scream to Abba and Shamaim, Atzilu, Atzilu, help me, help me. Why? There's nobody. There's a neshama, nobody. So who comes? The demons come and put clothing on them. It's come with us. And now they become the mazikim of Am Yisrael. When you hear that soldiers were killed by Arab terrorists, when you hear that soldiers were killed by ISIS, when you hear that, a lot of the times the soldiers would tell you that what happened, they saw this Arab guy, all of a sudden, they shot him 50 times, but he still continued. How? The Shadim go inside him. So yes, it was an Arab that carried the knife, or the Uzi, or whatever it was, but it could, it's most likely a Jew, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, that wasted seed in New York, created it. Kol Yisrael Aravim Am Yisrael is responsible for each other. That's why the Gemara Masechet Eruvin, page 19, says that on Rosh Hashanah, all of us are like Bnei Merun. All of us are like sheep going in a single file in front of the shepherd, one after one, one after one, as he counts, Maser. The Maser, how would they count the Maser? Taking the tithe? One sheep, two sheep, three sheep, four sheep, five sheep, six sheep, seven sheep, eight sheep, nine sheep, ten. Put a, a mark on him. Why couldn't they just count the whole thing and just pick whatever they want? No. One at a time. One at a time. One at a time. On a ten sheep, ten, they put a mark on him. That's Kodesh. That's already doesn't belong to me, the sheep. That cow doesn't belong to me. That's how Maasel is, 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 is paid. That's how we should do it also, by the way. Don't wait until the end of the year. It's not at the end of the year. A lot of expenses at the end of the year. You give Maaser as soon as you have the money. The point is, Rabotai, is that on Rosh Hashanah, the Gemara says, we, Am Yisrael, all of all mankind, we go in front of Hashem like little sheep, one after another, one after another, one after another. Why? Because each person has to not only pay for his own judgment of what he did, but all of the people that came before him. Why? Because Midah connected Midah. He's connected to their sin somehow. She might have uh, thought that, oh yeah, me not wearing a not modest dress and a really, really long wig 
and a mini skirt and a tank top and all this immodest clothing. I, I sinned myself. No, no, my friend. It's not just yourself. It's all the men that were influenced, all of the women that suffered because of you, all of this, all of that. Ooh, wah. By the time you finish cheshbon of one day, you want to bury yourself into the ground and never come out. So instead of being a tzaddikah like Eliyahu Navi says, bring Kodesh to the world, bring holy little kids to the world with Torah, mitzvot, milut chasadim, what are you doing? You want to take a break. You want to take a five-year break because you don't feel like having any kids or any more kids because you already have two and a dog. So Rabotai, these are the hard truths that all of us need to know and also all of us need to teach our kids. I saw in one of the uh, speeches of Rabbi Vadya, Allah Shalom, he says that at the age of six years old, which here we see already, that's a year after he's already started learning Chumash, the parents are supposed to tell the kids about Geinom. Obviously not the same details like you all heard in my shiur, but the whole concept of punishment from heaven. You have to teach your kids about punishment from heaven already at six years old, according to Rabbi Vadya. And he says the reason why is because their brain at that age can understand the concept of what you're trying to say. But at the same time, that brain is like a sponge and it will absorb all of it. Which means that if you teach them about punishment at six years old, they'll have Yirat Shemayim for the rest of their life. Whereas if you teach somebody that's 26 years old about Genom, if he doesn't continue coming to the shurim after three months, he's completely secular going out with a goya. Yeah, but he attended the shurim by Gehenom. Yes, he attended. He attended. He was scared to death. For a week, a month, two months, three months, finished. Teaching somebody about Gehenom at 26 or 36 or 46 is much, much different than teaching a six-year-old. Now, of course, again, you don't necessarily need to go through all the gruesome parts, but you have to explain to your kids that there is a concept called Geinom. It's fire, it's punishment when Hashem is upset with us for doing things that are against Him. And this is from Rabbi Vadya. Now you're on Uven. Yon Uven barely has the uh, permission to speak. So here already we see that just Five years. At five years old, we see how much of an influence, how much has, how much thought has to go into this. A woman come to the, came to the Chafetz Chaim one time and asked him for a blessing for her son, a brand new son, to become a Talmid Chacham. And the Chafetz Chaim got very upset. He says, you think that Israel Meir, that's his name, you think that Israel Meir can bless, and all of a sudden, poof, your son's going to be Talmid Chacham. Blessing can't do nothing. Blessing can't do anything. It can help only if there's work, only if you invest into him, only if you teach him, only if you do all of the other things, then the blessing can work. But the blessing by itself is nothing. Blessing by itself is nothing. These same stories are told about Ravavadiyah, the Saipla Gaon, many of the other tzaddikim were parents who naively came to them and asked them for blessing for kids. Thinking, oh, make him this, make him that, make him this. Like, what? Make who? Who am I? God? Rabotai, if you have kids, you have to make sure you invest into them. If you're not going to invest into them, 
don't have them. But you should know, if you're not having them, then you're the reason Mashiach didn't come. Either way, there's going to be something. There's no, there's no coasting. There's no coasting. So we're almost done. Ben Eser Shanim Lemishnah, at 10 years old, learn Mishnah. So from 5 to 10 years old, already the kid has had 5 years to learn the Chumash. This is enough time for him to cover the entire Chumash with a good teacher. And uh, it's enough time for him to go over the entire Chumash. Of course, a couple of times even, depending on, on the, uh, the depth of what they're going. And now at 10 years old, Chachamim say that it's time for him to learn Mishnah. But not Mishnah with details and elaborate commentary like you see here in the shiul. Basics. Basics. Very, very basics. Just to have a basic concept of what's going on. But this doesn't mean that he stops learning the Chumash. He continues learning the Chumash. The Mishnah is just on top of it. It's just that the Mishnah is now priority, and the Chumash is secondary. But there's now, every time we go to a level, it says Gemara and, uh, and all the other things, it never stops the, the original. You're just adding more and more. Now that you've grown up, and you have five years' experience, now it's easier for you. It's like, for example, when somebody does Chuba in the beginning, they go to Beknes the first time, they feel retarded. Why? Everybody else finished the prayer in 30 seconds, and they're still on the first page. But then after you go to Beknesset for a year, all of a sudden you're part of the crew. You also read pretty fast. You see another guy just came into the Beknesset the first time. He's like, oh yeah, poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah, I know how he feels. Why? Because you were in his shoes. That's why it's always a big mitzvah. Anytime you see somebody new, show him where everything is. If you're already in the Beknesset for a while, you know what you're doing. You've already done tshuva. You know where things are. Who, what, when, and how. Anytime you see somebody new, Show them where things are. But how do you show people what, where things are? Now, a lot of people, they don't consider that it's embarrassing. Why? Because they're selfish. So, they make a thing out of it. They make a scene. Hey, it's 4.52. They make sure the whole Beknesset knows that they know and he doesn't know. Don't do that. Don't do that. What do you do? Most of the time, everybody has the same book, same Sidhu. Take your Sidhu, give it to him, and take his. Quietly. Don't say nothing. Don't say he... Nothing. Take your sidu. Your whatever page, the right page. Put your finger on where it is. Give it to him. And take your sidu. Quiet, seamless, like nothing ever happened. That way, he's continuously going to think about the prayer and he doesn't lose any, any, any of his... Uh, he doesn't get embarrassed. But if you embarrassed him, it was better off you didn't do anything. If you embarrassed him, it's better off you weren't even born, actually. Why? A Jew, that you embarrass another Jew, you, you just lost all the You can't just embarrass people for no reason. You have to be careful. A Jewish neshama is very precious. I know I talk harsh about all these t- different things. What's going to happen? You don't do this, you don't do that. But people don't understand. It's all because the Jewish neshama is so special. If you don't take care of it, it gets ruined. So 10-year-old... It has to continue learning the Chumash, but now he's added Mishnah.
Now Midrash Shmuel says something unique. It says that since the Mishnah is part of the Oral Torah, it's the foundation of the Oral Torah, you have to teach the kid, or you should try to teach the kid to memorize it. Not just teach them, but actually have him memorize it. Why? At this young age, the mind is still uncluttered, and the kids can memorize a vast amount of material. You can have, for example, most kids that grew up in Yemen, or even in a Yemenite household, almost every single kid, even if, even if they grew up to become secular, anti-Torah everything, they still know the entire Chumash by heart. I'm not joking, I'm not exaggerating. You see, almost every little Yemenite kid knows the entire Chumash, 304,805 letters, they know the whole thing by heart. With the punctuations, with the sounds, with all the different ta'amim. It's unbelievable. You see a little 12-year-old kid, 10-year-old kid, 15, 25, all ages. They all know the whole Torah by heart. It's unbelievable. Why? Because when they're little kids, literally, tiny little kids, they follow this Mishnah. And they already teach them how to read from the Torah as little kids. I saw one time a video somebody sent. Two Chinese kids or Korean kids, girls. Neither one of them was older than five, six years old. One's probably four, five. The other one's probably five, maybe six. And both little girls are reading Parashat Korach with the Tamim better than any Chazan that I've heard live, except Rav Zev. Unbelievable. Two little girls. Chinese or Korean, Asian. Unbelievable. The mind of a little kid is so pure, you could literally put anything into it. Meaning that if it actually has any junk, it's 100% our fault. Any junk is our fault. Any junk is our fault. So Midrash Moritz says that since it's part of the Oral Torah... You should memorize it. Why? Because technically, the decree that Rabbi Udanasi passed of writing the Oral Torah, it wasn't such an easy thing to do. Until Rabbi Udanasi, Rabbi Akadosh, you weren't allowed to write the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah went from Moshe Rabbeinu, the Yeshua Benun, to the Skinim, to all of the prophets, and so on and so forth. And we were not allowed to write it down. Until the generation of Rebbe, Rabbi Udanasi, none of it was actually written down. Now the Gemara Masechet Megillah says that the first part of the uh, oral Torah that was actually written down was by Yonatan ben Uziel. He wrote commentary on the uh, Nevi'im. But to put the laws the Gemara, the Mishnah, all of that stuff all really started with, with Rebbe. So since technically we're not allowed to write it, he only did it because it was to save Am Yisrael, because we, he saw that the generation is becoming forgetful. He says that, and also, we're being tortured by the Goim. And if we don't start writing this stuff down, we don't have the ability to learn like we used to. If we don't start writing this stuff down, we're going to lose it to Achaz B'Shalom. We already lost a big part of what we had from Mount Sinai. 
We don't have all the Torah that we had in Mount Sinai. We don't have all the Torah that uh, Rabbi Akiva had in his 24,000 students. We don't have all the Torah that uh, we had back then. Already we were losing every generation more and more and more and more. He says we're losing it, we're forgetting pogroms, inquisitions, holocaust, and so on. We have to write something down. But it was, in essence, it was like Pikuach Nefesh of the Torah. But the Khatam Sofer says something very interesting. He says in reality, if someone writes a, someone writes a book, any book today about Alachot, any book today about Midrashim, any book today about the Oral Torah, if they do it Lishma, they do it for Shemaim, they do it for heaven, allowed. But if they're doing it to make money, the decree of not being allowed to write the Oral Torah still stands, they're not allowed to write that book. Khatam Sofer says you're not allowed to make a write a Sefer Torah just to make money. A lot of other poskim went against them. They didn't agree with this one. But the reality is it has a lot it has truth in it. It has a lot of truth in it. Why? Because oral Torah technically the decree never changed. It was Pikuch Nefesh. So it's important for us to know that take advantage of the brain of a little kid and his memory when he's five and ten years old. Also, the reason why you'll see that the, during the first three stages, between five and ten, ten and fifteen, it's periods of five years, is because the Gemara in Masechet Chulin, page 24a, also is giving us a uh, teachings that if a Talmud did not get success, did not taste success after learning something for five years, he'll never have it. If you've been learning halakha for five years, but you still don't know halakhot Shabbat, there's something very wrong with you. Something wrong. If a person went to yeshiva for five years, and he still hasn't grown, he's still the same as where he started, if to change yeshiva, change something, some even say you should take him out of yeshiva. Is something wrong. Why? Because the Jewish brain is supposed to be able to succeed within that time frame. If you're not succeeding after five years, there's something seriously wrong. So, here we see that the first, in the beginning, we learned for five years in order to make sure that's the time frame that you're going to see success. At 13 years old, he becomes obligated to keep the commandments. We learned that the kid is not allowed to, is not uh, obligated to keep commandments from the book of Numbers, chapter 5, verse 6, where it specifically says that the uh, sins are the responsibility of Ish and Isha, man and woman, as we already learned from uh, the beginning from Genesis, from what I just said, that we uh, Ish begins at 13 for men and 12 for women, Isha. So up to here, we see some pretty interesting things. Now, to finalize just this part, we'll continue Bezat Hashem tomorrow, is something that the Maharal says to consider. So if you notice, in the beginning, the periods change five years at a time. But then later on, when he gets to 20, the next part, it says to 30, and then 30 to 40, and 40 to 50, the periods become bigger. Because what's the difference between the one from 0 to 20 years old? 
and then 20 years old till 100. How come in the beginning it's every five years, but then later on it's every 10 years, and then eventually every 20 years, and so on? Why? The Maharaj says that in the beginning of a, of a child's life, the first 20 years, he has a good teacher. So he can do, first of all, he has a much cleaner brain, but second of all, he has a teacher that can do an enormous effect on him, an enormous job that could save him half the time. So instead of learning something on his own for 10 years, he can learn the same thing in 5 years. From here we learn the value of a teacher. The Maralik tries to explain to people that if you have a sharp brain, the first thing that that brain should do is determine who is the right teacher for you. More important than the actual subject itself. There are many people that teach Gemara, as many people that teach a lot of things. But it doesn't mean that you should learn from them. You have to learn from whoever affects you. If you're going and you're learning from us, let's say, for example, you buy a book. I remember the first book that I got of Torah was Rabbi Ephraim sent it to me. Maybe four or five hundred pages. And literally, to read it was like a, a tikkun for me. It was so difficult for me to read it. Why? It just, I didn't like the writing style of the author. I'm not going to mention the name even if you scream till you're blue in the face because maybe you like it and I'm not going to stop you. It's still Torah. But the point is, for me at that time, today I like it. Back then, to me at that time, I just couldn't take it. I still forced myself to read almost 400 pages. But I remember my wife telling me, she's like, it's like a sleeping pill for you, this book. I couldn't. I couldn't handle it. So a person needs to know that just because a book is a book of Torah doesn't mean yes, it's supposed to be for you. It's not just the book itself and the content. It's how the content is delivered. Same thing with speakers. It doesn't matter that the guy has long payers, short payers, beard, no beard, hat, no hat, woman, man. That stuff is only part of the argument. You have to make sure that you go out of that shear with something to take home. Your heart is shaking at the end of the shear. Something happened. If you come home the same way as you came there, stop going. There's something wrong. You're not supposed to go and leave and the same thing. Something's supposed to happen. A shiur Torah is supposed to get you fired up. That's the point of a shiur Torah, by the way. Shiur Torah is supposed to give you a summary of a bunch of information from a bunch of books in a certain way that's going to infuse some fire in you so you can read 20 books now because you're fired from that shiur. But if you come to the shiur like half sleep and you're at the end of the shiur, you're actually fully asleep, it's better off if you were half asleep. You're better, you're better condition. You're half dead. Not, now you're completely dead. So it's important that you evaluate who your teacher is, who your vessel is. People have a huge weakness in this generation. Every single time, it's a repeated thing over and over again. People are weak in this generation. They don't have a spine. As soon as somebody speaks, they think it's right. As soon as uh, they, they, they talk to somebody, they're like, oh no, I'm going to listen to him. Why? Why are you going to listen to him? What made him a vessel? What made her a vessel? Oh, he wore a keeper. So what? So Amalek wears a keeper sometimes. What difference does it make? He has a keeper. That's why you have to listen to him. People have to be a little bit, just like you are, a little more picky on the apartment you're going to pick, on the house you're going to pick, on the car you're going to pick, 
whether you're going to get leather seats or not leather seats, whether you're going to buy this program or just uh, try it out for 14 days for free, you evaluate everything else in your life. You have a little bit of pain in the side, you have 15 doctor's opinions, you have to pay taxes, you have five different accountants giving you an offer, you got a parking ticket, you want three lawyers to send you a proposal, Everything else we decipher, we determine, we research, and so on. Before you buy a stock, you do research for six months if you're normal. Everything else. But with rabbis, oh no, he spoke, so I'll listen. Like everybody's Moshe Rabbeinu. You're not allowed to do things like that. Many, many times I've seen it where literally young people will do tshuva, they come to the shulim, or they watch him online, they start going to Beknesset, and all of a sudden, they either be, they drop off the face of the earth, they stop watching the Shulim, or they, better yet, they become enemies. They hate me now. Or they hate Rabbi Zrachim. Why? What happened? Saved you from Geinom. Why would you hate me? Why would you go against? No, you know, the, the rabbi, the Shul, he says, you don't know what you're talking about. For two years, I knew what I was talking about to get you to Beknesset, wasn't it? I knew. For two years, it was fine. What happened? Oh, no, but he said uh, something else. What did he say? Oh, he said there's other opinions. So, there's other opinions. People are weak. People, they literally, they replace rabbis like they replace underwear. And what ends up happening is that they end up with no rabbi. Because the ones that invested in them, they abandoned. And then when they realize that they made a mistake, it's already too late. Why? Because their ego is this big. And I figured, now I'm going to tell this guy I'm sorry. Ah, I already cursed him out to his face. I already talked bad about him to the whole neighborhood. So it's going to look weird if I go to Shior after I just made a, a movie about him two years ago. So now what are they going to do? They're going to go to this other rabbi who doesn't care about them. The other rabbi who cares less about them, this and that. And what happens? The guy becomes rabbi-less. And the Gemara Masechet Yomah says, personal rabbi, Hashem hates him. Why? He can live a sin his whole life and never know it. No one's ever going to tell him anything. The value of a teacher, Rabotai, is extraordinary. If you have a good teacher, you could succeed in doing tshuva. If you have no teacher or you have a bad teacher, there are certain chachamim say, it's better off you never did tshuva. To that extent. So, of course, each person will have different rabbis for different things. Some rabbis will be the shul rabbi. Some rabbis will be the alacha rabbi. Some rabbis will be the chizuk rabbi. Each rabbi has a role. Usually there isn't one rabbi that can serve all roles. Because alacha, if you're going by alacha that's kosher, it's by somebody that's already not in this world anymore. If you're going by uh, your, your uh, shul rabbi, your shul rabbi is not always going to be able to fulfill the things you need for other things. You may not be comfortable with them, you may not know them, they may not be necessarily as versed in certain things that you're interested in. And your chizuk rabbi may not be there to answer your uh, questions on the whim every single second you have it when you're at shul. So the point being is that you should have a few, but again, you have to look at it, determine it, think about it, evaluate it, and realize that you need the rabbi much, much more than he'll ever need you. 
much more than he'll ever need you. The reality is, is that in order for a person to complete their tshuva, they need to have somebody to tell them what to do. You can't do it by yourself. I tell my wife all the time, one of the greatest gifts that we had and still have is our rabbis. Why? I know that whenever I do something wrong, someone's going to tell me. As annoying as it is, someone's going to tell me. And it's really annoying. Because I don't like to be wrong. Because I am convinced I'm always right. But Baruch Hashem, one of the greatest things is that I have somebody that can tell me what's wrong. Except, other than my wife. That's the easy part. That's the pshat. The point is, Rabotai, is that you need somebody to tell you you're wrong. You need somebody to tell you, do a better job. If you don't have that, it's going to be impossible for you to do tshuva. You're going to be 20 years still on the same level. I see a lot of people, they did tshuva 20 years, nothing changed. 20 years, still they're wearing uh, t-shirts and shorts. 20 years, she still don't have a kisu rosh. One of the saddest things that I saw in New York was in the first shoe. First year in Staten Island, there was a couple, wonderful couple came to the shoe, and both of them were crying at the end of the shoe. Mamash, Christ, like tears, tears, crying. Oh Hashem, I love it to see people wake up to such an extent. They cry at a shoe. It's amazing to me. I have, you know, it's, it's unbelievable that something I said from the Torah affected somebody's neshama to such an extent. But there were tears of joy. I later find out that they've actually been going to a shul for almost 20 years. But they never kept Shabbat. I say to myself, how does the rabbi go to sleep at night? How does the rabbi go to sleep at night knowing that he has members of the Keilah that drive on Shabbat for 20 years? How do you sleep at night? How do you do it? Like It's like your best friend, the Satan himself, is your best friend like Lucifer? Like, what's the matter with you? You have no. Are you an atheist? I mean, don't you realize that we read it every week that Hashem is real, that we read it and we talk about it and what He does? I don't understand how how, how people live like this. They let their members just live aimlessly. They never say a single word. Twenty years you go to shul. Twenty years you donate money. Twenty years you come, and twenty years you drive on Shabbat. I simply don't understand how people live with themselves. Rabotai, you have to you have to evaluate yourself though. Even though that rabbi is going to be punished dearly for it. And the biggest thing that ever happened to him, at least till this day, is the fact that these two this couple is Bazashim doing Chuba now. Now they're gonna start keeping Shabbat. It's actually saving him. Not just them. Because he was gonna to go to Gainom for them. And all the other members that are going. Now he's just going home for everybody else. But at least these two at least these two, they're going to do tshuva now. They cry. Why they cried? They cried because now they're going to keep Shabbat. Now they're going to do tshuva. That's why they cried. It's like we didn't know. 20 years going to shul, we didn't know it's like this. 20 years, they didn't know it. They didn't know it was like this. It's time every single one of us does cheshbon nefesh, self-accounting, evaluates where we stand, what we're doing, who, what, when, and how. And starts reflecting and start doing something about it. If you've been watching a certain shiur, or attending a certain lecture, or reading a certain book for an extended period of time, and it's not affecting you, it's time to move on. 
time to move to a different direction. Certain people that watch these certain rabbis, they tell me about it. It's like, yeah, yeah, but I've been watching such and such for two years already. I said, yeah, but two years you've been watching, you still don't even keep kosher? You still don't keep anything? He's like, yeah, but he, he gives me chizuk. What chizuk? To do what? To go out with more girls and make more sins? What chizuk does he give you? I don't understand these people. What chizuk is he supposed to give you? time for us to evaluate. What are you looking for and what are you getting? Because if you're getting something wrong, more times than not, it's because you're looking for something wrong. So it's time to see. What are we getting? What are we looking for? And Bezat Hashem, continue tomorrow with the rest of this Mishnah. Any questions? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) Seicha. So, uh, yeah, um, okay, because not tired. This week's parasha, we learn a lot of different interesting things about the Ben Soil Moray. Learn about forbidden marriages, having a uh, protective fence, a lot of interesting things. One of the things that we learn about is the halacha of Ibum. Ibum is when a person marries a woman, but then the husband dies before they have kids. In English, it's called a leveret marriage. The husband dies, and then, but he has a brother. And we originally learned it from Yehuda. Yehuda had two sons, Eren Onan. And first one married Tamar, and then he died because Hashem killed him because he wasted seed. So Hashem made him, the second son, married Tamar. And Hashem killed him also. And she was supposed to marry the third son which never happened, and then eventually she married Yehuda. But we see that this specific mitzvah of leveret marriage, the Yibum, is something that we had already before Matan Torah, even before Moshe Rabbeinu. At the time of Yaakov Avinu, we had it. And in this week's parasha, again, it's mentioned that if a uh, person dies, his uh, brother is allowed to marry his wife, as long as they didn't have any kids. If they had kids, then he's not allowed to marry the wife. Now what if the brother doesn't feel like marrying her? What if the wife doesn't feel like marrying him? So she's not obligated to marry him. And he's not obligated to marry her. But if she walks away, it's fine. It's no big deal. She doesn't want to marry him. But if he walks away... And he doesn't want to do it, then they have to go through a whole process where she actually spits in his face. Through in front of the Bedin. She spits in his face, she spits in his shoe also. Why? And she's supposed to say, This is what you get for not wanting to continue the seed of your brother. So I never really understood this. I actually asked myself the other day. Why does he get so the guy is getting embarrassed in public? 
because he doesn't feel like marrying her. Maybe she's ugly. Maybe he's not attracted to her in a different way. Maybe, I don't know, he has, uh, he's interested in someone else. I don't know, maybe something. Like, why does he have to marry her? Okay, he doesn't. Fine, if he doesn't, no, khalas, go find somebody else. Big deal. Why do you have to spit on me for? Such a gruesome, disgusting thing. I never really understood it. Until, Sonny asked me a question right before this year, and I had the chiluz, Baruch Hashem, what would you ask? Do you remember what you asked? He didn't remember what he asked. Any question? Okay. I'll ask the question and give you the answer. So, the tough part today and every other day and all days before us is that when you move on in your life, you're going to change things. So, for example, if you go from even something as simple as a haircut. I remember going and getting haircuts. You go every time you go to a new barber, first thing they do is insult the previous one. Oh, who cut your hair before? They ruined everything. They ruined everything. You go to a new salon, who cut who did your hair last time? They ruined everything. Oh, I'm gonna fix it, I'm gonna fix it. You go to a new programmer to the for to fix your website. Oh, who built this website? It's complete garbage. We have to start everything from scratch. We have to start everything from scratch. It's garbage. I can't, I can't work with this. I have to start. You know how many times I created websites in my in my life? Every time somebody left my company, whether it was uh, before or after, whatever, every time after somebody else has to take over the website. Every time the person that wants to take over the website, no, this is garbage. What you have is garbage. I paid $40,000 for it. It's complete garbage. We have to have somebody else do it. We have to start all over from scratch. Every time, every time. A person goes and he changes schools or he moves. The new teacher says, what would you learn? He starts telling him, well, ah, no, that's not what we do here. That's not what we do here. We're going to do something else. You're going to have to do some after work, some after school work. Why? Why is this? Why is this? Why do we have this horrible nature? It's because Rabotaya Karim no one wants to continue somebody else's work. And the reason why is because we have a huge ego. We have a huge, gigantic ego. And we feel that as long as it's somebody else's work that started it, we're never going to get the full credit that we deserve. If I say, no, he did a good job, but I'm going to do something else, I'll continue, that means that I'm less in our demented mind. That means that we're less than, we, did, we didn't do the whole thing. If I say, no, the, the website that he built is good, but let me just add a few new features. No, no, I'm complimenting his. It's not good. It's also because we're greedy. We want more money. We want more fame. We want more fortune. We want more of these different things. Meaning that there's people out there in the world that actually provide good stuff good services, good products, good things, but there's always going to be someone else that's going to say it's garbage. Why? It's not because it's garbage. It's because they have a, they don't want to continue it because they want to get all the credit. So the Torah tells us that when a man does not want to continue the lineage of his brother, it's a horrible midah. Why? In reality, what difference is it to him? 
It's not like he has to watch his brother's kids. There's no kids. If the woman is beautiful, you're attracted to her. What difference is it to you to get married to her to get married to another woman? She's beautiful. She's kosher. She's good. What's wrong? Ah, you don't want to do it because of what? Because you, it specifically says, you don't want to continue your brother's, your brother's lineage. Because you're not going to get credit for it. Which means that all you do is to get credit. All you're doing is to try, you're just doing things to get credit. And for that, you deserve to get spit in the face. Why? Because you are a waste. You're a waste. You're doing everything for credit. And we already learned at the beginning of the Mishnah. Antigonosh Isoho says to us, don't serve the master. Don't serve the master just because you're going to get a reward. Serve him as if you're not going to get a reward. Serve him Lishma. Serve him for heaven. Serve him for the sake of serving him. Why? Because that is a real service. Yes. That's a different reason. No, then it's not. No, it's only for a single single. Yes, obviously. Well, she's a, she's a, if the woman is a good woman, uh, somebody obviously the family already married her. Somebody in the family already married her. Obviously, that means she's a good woman. Then you, then you want to leave her out there, you're putting her in a situation, you're putting a bati sa'ed in a very difficult situation. Why? Because it's very difficult for a widow to find a second husband, especially in those days. You know, so it's not like today. Today, the people are already used to the, the climate where an average person is married five times. You know, in those days, if you're already married one time, if you were touched, if you were touched even, already that puts you in a bad situation. I mean, even if you look at, for example, I mean, it specifically says also in the parasha that a person is not allowed, whether male or female, not allowed to be promiscuous. They call it kedushim. There should not be a promiscuous woman among the daughters of Israel, and there shall not be a promiscuous man among the sons of Israel. Say, uh, being promiscuous is strictly forbidden in the Torah. And uh, as a matter of fact, to such an extent that people get death penalties for it. And, and aside from that, even if they weren't caught in the act and so on, still, they were, uh, they were considered disgusting in the eyes of Hashem, and it would be very, very difficult for anyone to ever marry them. Even if someone, for example, was just simply not a virgin, no one would want to marry her. What if she got raped, and the, and the, and the person that raped her wants to marry her now? In most cases, they would actually allow it to happen. Why? She doesn't have to marry him. She doesn't have to. But she would want to marry him now. Why? Because nobody else would want her. This is the mindset of what happened. This is 3,000 years ago, but it's not today. Today, she calls the cops, the guy goes to jail for the rest of his life. But in those days, he would pay a huge fine to her father. And if she wanted to, she would be allowed to marry him. Why? Why would she even think about marrying such a, such a loser? Because she knows that no one else is going to want to marry her now. So that's the thing, Abutai. In those days, things were very, very different. Also talks about how men are not allowed to dress like women, women are not allowed to dress like men. Very, very interesting, Parashah. And it, there's a, uh, the big thing is, is that you have an enormous amount of mitzvot in each, in each uh, part of the Torah, an enormous amount of lessons to learn from each part of the Torah. If you even take a little bit of it, Apply it to your life each week. Your life changes. Little by little it changes. Yes? You said that uh, Yibu, he has to take on his brother's uh, lineage, right? One son, yes. Yeah, but what if 
Right, so this first son is not his. First son is considered his brother's. After that, he continues. Nobody ever gets, uh, nobody ever loses from doing a mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Can't he embarrassed her? He embarrassed her by not wanting to marry her. So it looks, it's, it's, it's looked down upon. Why wouldn't you want to marry a buddy slave? What's wrong with her? Well, she have three heads. Like, what's wrong? Why wouldn't you want to marry her? Meaning that they would, they, according to the Torah, the only reason why he didn't want to marry her is purely because of his ego. It's not like today where, you know, you have shiduch resumes, and if he's not uh, exactly 5'10 and, and a half, and his income is exactly 92,000 in this particular thing, and he knows exactly this much and this much and that. It's not like today. Today, man, woman, Baruch Hashem, alive, well, healthy, so on. Baruch Hashem. Kumbaya, let's go. That's it. It's not, it's not like today. People are so picky. You know, send me a picture. I don't like this picture. Send me another picture. Send me this resume. Oh, Sephardic, no good. Oh, Ashkenazi, no good. Oh, Litvish. Oh, this Hasidut. No, Chaz Shalom. It's not like that. It's not like that. In those days, man, woman, finished. Meaning that if you didn't want to marry her, it's purely because of ego. You didn't want to continue somebody else's work. You didn't want to continue somebody else's seed. You don't want to continue somebody else's this or somebody else's that. Meaning, you want everything. You care only about yourself. You don't care about Puru Bu. You don't care about Hashem. You don't care about anything but yourself. And that is a horrible, horrible midah. What do you mean cancel the mitzvah? Well, we don't have a bedin. The mitzvah is no mitzvah is cancelled. You should never say mitzvah is cancelled. Mitzvah is not possible because we don't have a sanedrin. But if we have a sanedrin, Mashiach comes. We have to do the mitzvah. We have to fill the mitzvah. Same thing with korbanot. Same thing with bet mikdash. Same thing with everything else. All of the mitzvot still applicable. But if we have, for, if we don't have the ability, we don't have a sanedrin to judge. Then we're anusim. We're, you know, we're absolved from the mitzvah because we don't have a possibility to fulfill it. But in reality, if we had it, we'd have to do it. Every single one of the mitzvah we'd have to do. As soon as the Mashiach comes, every one of us is going to need to know how to bring korbanot. You're going to have to start bringing some korbanot, some, have a nice farm, have some nice farm, have some cows ready. Huh? Keves, you have to, have, to, have to start bringing some korbanot. You have to get ready. Absolutely, yes. The, 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 we, over the generations, we've gone down more and more, but it still does not, it does not cancel out the mitzvah because of that. It's a, uh, if, whether you marry a lishma or lo lishma, you're still supposed to do it. Now, of course, you don't want to uh, have a situation where, uh, you know, the guy kills his own brother. But again, this is assuming that people are overly, you know, righteous. Just like, for example, the, uh, when the uh, people would uh, murder somebody by accident they would send them to Iramiklat. So let's say, for example, you were two people working construction, and one guy was careless, and he kicked the ladder. Careless, just was joking around, kicked the ladder, or he didn't know that his friends were at the top of the ladder, he kicked the ladder, the other guy fell down and died. Now the Torah says that that person that killed them, it was an accident, it's not on purpose, 
the Bedin will allow him to run away to Iramiklat, to the uh, cities where uh, he, could, he could hide. Hide from who? Hide from the guy's family. The guy that he just killed by accident. Why? Because technically, if they kill him, there's no judgment against them. They're allowed to kill him. Even though his, he killed him by accident, and they're going to kill him on purpose, they're allowed to kill him. But if he's over there, and Iramiklat, they're not allowed to touch him over there. No one's allowed to, to, uh, to enter there. So far, no, nothing new. Now, the Torah says that the mothers of the Kohen Gadol, the mothers of the Kohen Gadol would go to the Iramiklat and give these people food every day. Every day they would give them food. Special nice, chulent, gefilte fish, uh, chamin, whatever you want they give them. They give them sushi, burgers, barbecue, whatever they want. Tbecha, bamya, whatever you want they give them. Why? Well, with, with the Kohen Gadol, the biggest rabbi in the world, why is his mother going to these criminals, accidental criminals? Why? They're still murderers, but accidental. Why? Because as soon as the Kohen Gadol dies, they are all allowed to leave the Iramiklat, and no one's allowed to touch them. So the mom would be afraid that all of them are there in the Iramiklat praying for our son, the Kohen Gadol, to die. So she's afraid they're praying for her son to die, the Kohen Gadol. She said, no, no, I'm going to give them food. I'm going to give them food, make them happy. They go, don't pray for my son to die. That's the Torah. That's the Torah. Everything, Banui, everything connected. Can't, can't. Today, uh, by the, uh, somebody comes to kill you, you're allowed to kill them first. They have a right to kill you now. No. You they, don't have a right. they don't have a right to kill you. No, I'm saying back in the day, let's say you have a right to kill you. If they were chasing, you see them coming, you're allowed to fight them? Can't, you're allowed. Yeah, yeah. yeah now, now you, you don't make yourself into a korban. No. 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 Any other questions? We're done for tonight. 12 already. We said tomorrow night we have a sure uh, Aventura. <laughs> I still don't know where it is. Same zip code. Uh, we'll continue this Mishnah Bezot Hashem. Uh, some other things to talk about, some other Chidushim. We'll continue the rest of the Mishnah. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.